Welcome to Drink in the Movies with Taylor and Michael. Back again to savor the movies we've watched over the past week and as always enjoy a new beer. Taylor, what are we drinking this week? We're drinking Wander Dog Lost Pilsner. Uh, I got it from the Hellbent Brewing Company that we normally go to, but they had a guest tap that I thought sounded nice. It's a German Pilsner. Um, So we're going to have that. We're going to talk about some really fat Spike Lee joints. Um, So I think we should probably cheers so that I can taste this Pilsner. Let's do this. Mm. Yes, this Mm. is why I chose it. I wanted this nice German aroma. You made an executive decision this time. I did. As you picked up the beer solo. You did well. Thank you. It's kind of got a chocolatey tinge Mm. to it, doesn't it? Just like a nice... You can have it like almost after dinner. Yeah. A few joints rolled by uh, Mr. Lee here. Spike Lee. I think we're going to start in order of release. Uh, His feature film debut, She's Gotta Have It. We watched it your insistence. I had always meant to watch it in college when I was doing film class, uh, but I never got around to it. Pleasantly surprised by this one. Um, You enjoyed it quite a bit. I think we liked it uh, equally. I think we both gave it four stars. I feel like we should have some hip-hop music playing as we kind of roll into the Spike Lee section of the podcast. That's our classic Or or just a nice fat bass line like uh, Black Klansman is advertised on it. Ba-dum-bum. Exactly. Kind of get the listeners bouncing their heads oh, a little yeah. bit. We hope all of you guys are kind of feeling that as we get into our Spike Lee Turn movies. Turn on your own favorite baseline in the background. And play. Now we're in the mood. She's got to have it. I liked it quite a bit, too. I was more struck, I think, by the style of this film than the content. Um, yes. Would you agree? 100 and the because i think that the content um is more about the character of what's being said whereas the style Mm. is more about the characters who say it right and i definitely think that its characters are fantastic i think that its line deliveries are amazing i think the screenplay is a really good time absolutely Um, well edited really original you know it's got that great word panache to it Oh yeah. Uh, where is the you know the meat of it is it it's not bad it's just not anywhere near the stylistic lengths that Spike reaches. Yeah, exactly. I had heard prior to seeing this, I haven't seen you know a, there there are quite a few Spike Lee movies that I hadn't seen, but I had heard him in the past discussed in the same vein as Woody Allen, which never made sense to me until I kind of saw this in Twenty Fifth Hour, which we'll talk about it in a minute, and uh, realized that. Um, just realized how he captures New York City in his movies. Um, I think about Woody Allen as being a New Yorker and, and, and his love of, of his city coming through on film. And even though a lot of She's Gotta Have It is set in interiors, because this is kind of like a sex comedy, I thought about, you know, that, that lush black and white and, you know, grounding characters in these New York settings. When we first meet Mars Blackman, uh, you know, he's kind of like off right in Mars the frame. Mars is such a great character. So much fun, right? Uh, it's a bridge in the background, just, you know, I don't know which bridge it is, if it's a Brooklyn Bridge or not, but it's just, you know, kind of this classic New York city look to it, right? This feels urban. These feel like urban characters. Oh, yeah. um, feels like the setting of a few songs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he inserts 
photographs, right, throughout the film, Mm -hmm. which I actually, I don't know that I think that they're really seamless with the narrative. I do like them. I think they're beautiful photographs. I think that's when you kind of feel his compassion as a director. I don't think that they fit a continuous story narrative. I think that what they do is they punctuate Mm. and accentuate the fact that we're kind of jumping. Because we are jumping. We're jumping from one person's perspective of Nola to the next. Yeah. You know, and, and it goes over this broad timeline. So it's kind of like postcards. To me, it was the cover Mm. of a postcard. Then we were getting kind of a new perspective each time. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's like for a feature debut, you already see him sort of playing with just cinematic grammar, Mm -hmm. right? He doesn't feel the need to to, to abide by conventions. He's like, I'm just going to put some photographs in here. Spend some time is mine. Yeah, and the breaking of the fourth wall, right? We're getting interviews with these characters, yep. which which make it more fun. And I thought it actually did play kind of a key role because had we not gotten those, to me that was kind of like these characters sort of giving us permission to watch some of these really intimate moments. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, this would have felt more just voyeuristic or something like that. Maybe not, maybe not it, bad. It also but... like put me into a lens of like, I was almost her therapist. Like yeah. they were coming to me, the audience, to ask what I thought about her behavior. Yeah, absolutely. And that was an interesting lens to put on me because I, you know, I, I didn't know what I thought about her behavior and I, I don't really yeah. still. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not, I, I think it does, you know, sort of celebrate her free will, right? Um, and her choosing, but but well, it's not... it certainly not, celebrates not, her, but it, yeah. it also accentuates how she made terrible choices, especially at the end, where, where she breaks up with everyone and then tries to get this guy back and then leaves him after he abandons his romantic pursuit. At the, you know, like, she, yeah. she's kind of a homewrecker. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's not... But you're on her uh, side, which is delicious, you know? It's, exactly. It's, We're it's on her time. side, even though these these maybe, you know, this the the kind of problematic part of her is also on display like it's not just you know he doesn't make it too easy just to finish up your thought you said that you never understood his comparison with Woody Allen Mm. I've always understood that because Mm. I'm performance centric character centric Mm. um and Woody's always creating these new characters you know even his bad movies like uh Amazon's Wonder Wheel a terrible movie great characters Really yep. great characters. Juno Temple is one hell of a character. I would draw a lot of similarities with Juno Temple and Nola. Um, yeah. I don't remember her name in Wonder Wheel, but yeah, you know, like there there are these really uh, centered uh, characters that are written by both of these guys. Yeah, and just you know, the the New York thing is certainly a similarity, but I think they're really strong yeah. at rep- uh, or their greatest strength is at representing these deep characters. Yeah, yeah, and affection for them. Yeah, and right? these characters that feel like they're real too. Like, I feel yeah. like when I turn off the movie, they're still out there doing what they're doing. Right. They do feel like, like New Nola, Yorkers. Nola lived up the 90s to me. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially with uh, Spike Lee always making himself a character. Not always yes. a big one. Here it's a little... He's more He's more involved. I think I preferred his character in Malcolm X. Um, oh, yeah. A little bit more, but mm. this is a great character. I really like Mars. Yeah. he To me, he even has like a little bit of that Woody Allen neurosis oh 100 percent, right? <laughs> and the glasses and kind of yeah. the diminutive stature and Absolutely. like he, he's got a lot to say but he doesn't want to tell you he wants to show you yeah exactly it's just inviting i think sometimes directors involve or cast themselves and it can come off as kind of vain like uh gosh what was the movie with ben affleck that won or didn't win best, i think it won best picture um yeah. not gone girl it was the middle eastern one argo, argo. Right, that he directed, 
and he cast himself in, and he oh, had to... Oh, Argo it, doesn't deserve Best Picture, there's no doubt about it. Definitely not, I agree. And he has a shot in there, he just had to include a shot of him with his shirt off at one point. There's something about a director doing that kind of thing. I don't know about that, man. <laughs> He's the guy that shot everything. Uh, I, anytime that I want to criticize stuff like that, and I do all the time, the checks that I have in place are, do I know how much they shot? Mm-hmm. I almost never know how much they shot. You know, it could be anywhere from four to 12 hours. Do I know that the editor didn't make this choice and that was the director or not? You know, and, and if you do know those things, then you're absolutely allowed to think that. But for me, I was just like, I want to, you, you always want to project and be angry, but you never know who to be angry at or if you're even allowed to be. <laughs> yeah. You know, fair point. Sometimes Maybe. you, I mean, it's absolutely fair to feel away, but I don't know that it's necessarily fair to blame the director for an editor's choice. Ben Affleck, if you're listening, I apologize. I don't. <laughs> but uh, Morris Blackman, who Spike Lee does play in this one, I think, you know, he's kind of a self-deprecating character, right? He's, he's casting himself as, as Mars, and Mars is uh, kind of needy, right? I think about him being yeah, on the phone. Yeah, but he's super, like, clever. Oh, super clever, but I think about come him on, being baby, on the baby, phone. Come on, baby, 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 Come on, baby, 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 baby. That's exactly what I was about oh, to say. Oh, baby, baby, baby. Come on, baby. <laughs> to me, it's, you know, it's partly just about, like, the crap that women have to put up with. There's that yeah. montage and of... he's so great at giving them the crap. And yeah, line der- delivery. I hadn't really thought about that specifically, but you're totally right. There are those... There's, like, that montage of guys saying all the things that they say to women. So funny. Um, my favorite... I think it was maybe the very first one. Maybe that's why I remember it. But he says, like, you're so beautiful, I'd drink a tub of your bath water. <laughs> <laughs> there's just, there's great, great wit throughout. Yeah. Good lines. Spike Lee must have been quite the womanizer. <laughs> yeah. Anything you didn't like about it? Anything that kind of held it back from a five or just kind of the um, overall impact? Yeah. I mean, just pace issues. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily... He hadn't mastered the cut jump yet. Um, Mm -hmm. He gets really good at the cut jump, like in 25th Hour. Um, He even has some good moments of it in Malcolm X. So he has, I think, one of the best um, to ever do it in Do the Right Thing. I think that that is one of the best edited films of all time because it lingers on the right moments and it cuts in the right moments. Um, This is just, you know, it's a great freshman effort and it lacks mastery, which is great because then I get to see him develop it. Exactly. It's kind of like Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs, you know. I'm not necessarily in the camp that thinks that Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs are perfect movies. I think they're really great just like this. And to see Quentin develop is just like seeing Lee develop. You get to notice what he learns, how he learns to use it, um... I think that later on, he... Uh, is this the movie with a bunch of jump cuts? Uh, I was think Well, the first one that comes to mind is 25th Hour, when you think of jump cuts, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so with that, he, like, overuses the jump cut. And in it's Black Klansman, he uses it once. Perfectly. What do you think it up in Black Klansman? I'll tell you when we we'll get, get there. We'll get there. You, you bring it back up, and I'll Suspense. tell you. Suspense. Yeah. Noted. And he also does the same thing with the conveyor, conveyor belt shot in Black Klansman. He, he, oh, the he floating phenomenon? Yeah, he overuses these in other films. And does, right. it, does the jump cut once, um, or the cut repeat, sorry. He does a cut repeat once. 
and he does the conveyor belt shot once in Black Klansman right. to perfect effect. Yeah. Um, at climaxes. So, um, yeah, she's got to have it. I'm super positive on it. There's a lot of quotes that I loved in that movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have one favorite. Um, do you have any favorites that you remember? The the, the tub of bathwater line the, the was, was bath a favorite. Um, Nothing out does the tub of bathwater for you, does it? <laughs> there are a couple other good ones in there. Um, but that, that one stuck with me. <laughs> so, uh, my favorite quote, uh, I looked it up here. We let her create a three-headed, six-armed, six-legged, three-penis monster. And it was all our fault. Love it. What a great quote. What a, what a, I'd love to know how he went about tackling that screenplay. Do you remember who said that? You could imagine it coming it out of almost the, any of their um, mouths. but It wasn't Mars, and it wasn't the um, the romantic character. It was the kind of mm. womanizer character that was always uh, acting like he was better than her. And uh, yeah. folding, you know, he took two hours to fold his clothes before he climbed in bed uh, with her yeah. for the first time. Yeah, yeah this is the, the vain one. Yeah, um, yeah, you know who I'm talking about. The vain absolutely. one, great way to put it, yeah. Yeah, that was a, a great scene. She's already... I think she's already in bed. She's in bed naked waiting for him excitedly. And he just spends an immense amount of time like folding and refolding and and shaking out and then trying to fold it again. And and then it's a really sloppy fold by the end of it. And it's just kind of draped on the furniture. <laughs> yeah, for a movie with like a lot of verbal wit, that was just, that was just, you know, just visual humor. Yes. Super good. I laughed out loud pretty hard. <laughs> So, um, I think that that's it for me on She's Gotta Have It. Any parting shots? Go watch it. It's on Netflix. It is. Yeah, it's on Netflix right now. Are either of these others on Netflix, do you know? I don't believe so. Okay. I think of our Spike Lee joints, this is the one and only. One and only. Um, it does have a television show that Spike Lee is running on Netflix. Um, if you really like the film, you can dig into that. Uh, this movie is about 80, 86 minutes. It's real short, and if you like it, then you've got a whole television series you can get into. Um, and I definitely recommend seeing this before you see Black Klansman, if you have the time. Uh, so now we're going to hop over to Malcolm X. So rolling on to our next Spike Lee joint. Had to do it. You already uh, got one pun in. Let me open my Zippo here and just get this, get this lit. <laughs> we'll keep the puns coming. Stay tuned. Uh, Malcolm X. This is a biopic, a very long biopic, starring Denzel Washington as the titular Malcolm X, hitting a three-hour and 20-minute runtime, so uh, an epic hmm. biopic, I that's, would call it. such a kind way of putting it. Epic in length, if nothing else. Epic in how much energy it cost me. <laughs> this is a long sit, and I think we both came out... Uh, with similar reactions, uh, rating-wise, I gave yes. it a three and a half. You gave it a three and a half? Uh, I think so. I, I might have bumped it down to a three, though. Oh, you did take it down? I think so. All right. I, th- I think that it was watching Black Klansman that I, I kind of had a better understanding for how to how I rate Spike's films. God, it helps just, put it in context. Just because something is deemed historically important separately in culture does not mean that someone's film is allowed to be reviewed by that merit. Right. And has since come down in your estimation as yes. a result. 
Well, just Slightly. not not in my estimation, but I'm just understanding how, or just more accepting of actually saying how I feel about it, which is not mm-hmm. that good. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I like in the first half. There's a lot of stuff that I hate um, about it, kind of in the middle and near the end, where it's kind of um, ad- addressing um, things in a non positive way it's tackling really hard issues but being really um bitter about them and not forward thinking and saying um basically something that keeps coming up is because someone does something that's bad we get to do the exact opposite thing and it's good Mm -hmm. no it's still bad black Klansman really shows the growth of that you know and it's yeah, it's understandable because it is a biopic. It's a great historical historical uh, biofilm or or whatever you want to call it. Um, that has to be accurate, but it's also just unacceptable that you would buy into patently false facts mm. and um, not research them to any extent, and then behave in such a way as Malcolm did. There's yeah, so you're lot. talking about Malcolm X, not yeah. Spike Lee as a Correct. filmmaker. Yeah, there, or no, the there's maker a lot of stuff that Malcolm does that I definitely have a problem with. Like he's he's lacking a certain shrewdness. Um, I love how he gets into everything through that etymology facet, though. He's mm. at the jail and he's being taught Islam by a person who's also at the jail, and they are digging into the dictionary and figuring out what words mean and and why that is. And that's a really great way to understand the world. But you also need to do that in other areas. You can't just trust what someone tells you. And he doesn't look in other areas. He takes what that person continues to tell him as the word of God for basically an hour and a half. And it, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I understand why someone would do it, but I don't forgive it. If that makes sense. You don't forgive, again, again Malcolm. You mean exactly. or Spike Lee yes. for... for... His yeah, I, I don't forgive an influencer of people that is attempting to convert people to a religion. I, mm. I do not forgive them um, for being lackluster in their pursuit of knowledge and fact. If yeah. they're going around and presenting facts and attempting to convert people, um, I'm going to hold them to a higher uh, standard than an average person. And if he was just a normal character, it'd be a lot more forgivable, but he's someone who's trying to win friends and influence people. Were you okay with how Spike represented him? I had no problems with how Spike represented him. Um, based on the uh, limited reading that I did and um, some um, different stuff that I looked up, it was very accurate. That was exactly how most things happened. He definitely took some liberties, but by and large, it was generally how it all happened. He did yeah. meet someone in jail that converted him to Islam that was a janitor and yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, it's a very long movie. I think one benefit of the runtime is that unlike many biopics that try to do like the young age thing to death, it can start to feel like a little episodic and Definitely. The, the, the phases of their life are really easily defined chapters, which you do kind of get here. You can describe, you know, the, the young years, the drug dealer years, the prison years, but character-wise, I think it's a pretty smooth sort of trajectory that we get. I sort of, I sort of think that how we're moving from one state of mind to the next is one thing that the runtime does kind of allow to be 
kind of smooth. So when um, you're you're saying smooth, you mean like it didn't jar you as the character changed? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. me, it's kind of like he's a well. It's a well greased film. Yeah, like, you're yeah. not getting caught when his character all of a sudden changes because it does feel like it's an earned change each time. Exactly, and it does happen yep. quite a bit. Yeah. So inevitably, when you do that, like birth to death arc, there are just there's so much stuff that you just end up liking some things more than others. Absolutely. Right. Um, well, let's let's dig there. What's your yeah. favorite scene? I think my favorite scene's unfortunately towards the beginning, and it's. It's kind of downhill from there, but I think first act is kind of my favorite, where it feels... What's your favorite um, scene? The dance one. club scene. Okay, mine too. Yeah. Um, or, By far my favorite. It reminded right. me of a film from Vincent Minnelli's Cabin in the Sky. Mm, yeah, there's so I have not seen that. Same, same work. There's a scene particularly at the end of Cabin in the Sky that's kind of a fulcrum of... Um, I, I won't spoil it for you or the listener, because I, I do think that it's something that you benefit from from not knowing exactly what you're looking at, but there's a certain bar scene, the song and dance number, and it just really conjured up that Minnelli choreography and lighting and kind of the sense of place, and everyone's kind of got their own separate stuff going on, but there's a central character that's definitely taking this this light. Um, and you know that it's about more than this, but at the moment it's just all about what's happening in this uh, seeing it with this dance and the song and that's present in Malcolm X and it's present in Cabin in the Sky oh yeah and I think that uh, it's really fun to see Spike play in that um, flavor of, of film of this dance yeah. and song stuff and I think that uh, you should definitely dig into more of Vincent Minnelli's uh, musical yeah. type work. yes that mu- that feel of a musical is something that I kind of wish like Chirac maybe did had pulled off. I didn't like Chirac a whole lot. Did they try to do that in Chirac? I don't know. I guess I kind of not really. Maybe that's not. Maybe that's not a good. Comparison. I definitely. Agree. I guess I just like I. I project that they should have done that. I just yeah. don't remember if they did. And if they yeah. did, then they did a terrible job because I yeah. would be absolutely putting their hands for that. Yeah. I just remember not liking that movie, yeah, and I, I remember. Um, I. I got my friend to watch it with me, and I was like, this is going to be amazing. It's the first Spike Lee joint in a while. It's, yeah. it's called Chirac. It's like this Romeo and Juliet story set in Chicago. Oh, it's going to be so good. There's so much culture to like, oh, it's going to be such a good... And then it just sucked. Yeah. Michael B. Jordan in a bad movie directed by Spike Lee. I did not expect that. If you would have told like me a lot that of was people. coming when I was a big old Spike Lee uh, fanatic in college, I would not have believed you. A bad Spike Lee movie? <laughs> Feel like that disappointed a lot of people something with seemingly so much potential fell a yeah. little flat but that opening scene in malcolm x or maybe it's not the opening scene but an early scene in the club spike denzel washington these great hitting hats, the dance floor suits. they're excited it's one of those moments where you see spike casting himself but you're happy for him he's mm-hmm. having a great time i'm happy to watch it yep. i liked it and I liked Denzel from from start to finish. I it was a good performance. I don't think I liked him, meaning I don't think that I liked Malcolm the character. Right. Um, I liked him at at different periods of the film, but I don't think that I liked him the entirety of the film. Yeah. And I think that that maybe it was on purpose. Did Did you like yeah. the Malcolm character the entire time? You were always on his side. I didn't, no, I mean, kind of whether or not you agree with the character's 
politics or behavior. I mean, I think almost right from the get-go, I felt like Spike was not necessarily just giving a glowing endorsement. Right from the get-go, you see him sort of, you know, do his his womanizing and uh, just being being mean and crappy to the to the white girl he's in a relationship with, Sophia, yeah. I think. Right from the get-go, you, you sort of see that Spike's. I don't. I don't think Spike Spike was making him out to be a saint by any means. I think no. he establishes that early yeah. on. I think. Um, I think that that was really jarring to me because I think that I came in expecting to watch this movie like so many biopics where we're just making a saint out of someone like Darkest yeah. Hour last year just made a saint out of Winston Churchill mm-hmm. and I loved it but I was like there's a lot more to Winston this, you know yeah. but Gary Oldman's performance more than made up for that for me um, but with this picture the one thing that it's really short it, it comes up a few times is when he makes his hair white and he puts the chemical in and it begins to burn mm. um, d- to give him uh, an, a, a white appeal, if you will, um, based on the context of this film. That's what he's going for. That was such a powerful image. Um, I really liked that choice that he made to do that. Yeah. And the scene where they are about to wash it out and realize that there's no water running through the house. Oh, I like that scene. Yeah. That was maybe the most oh no moment for me in the whole movie despite this being that was not the most for me <laughs> I, it's one that I actually I just didn't see coming yeah. I was like this is gonna I hurt. mean it was an oh no moment, but there's a few <laughs> oh no moments for me where he's on a soapbox telling people <laughs> things as facts that are not in fact facts it's kind of like mm-hmm. the miseducation of Cameron Post where I'm watching someone mm-hmm. tell someone that a, a book written thousands of years ago holds the reason with why you are the problem for yourself it's like yeah in certain senses but not with who you are fundamentally and it kind of malcolm x kind of does the same thing where he's proselytizing that these teachings of the prophet muhammad will make the afro-americans i believe is what he calls them in this film uh, no longer subjected to white perversions or or white or the white devil. They constantly bring up the white devil, which is definitely a uh, a running theme in within Islam. Um, they they often reference like anything west of Rome as the white devil, and you see the devil's claws. Um, and I just I really don't feel like that's a way to gain power. Once again, just like Wanda, it's you have to admit that you are powerful yourself and that you need to make the right decisions for yourself and that that can't be put on something else. You can't be the victim of someone else. You are the victim of someone else, especially in this movie. Afro-Americans, as he calls them, are absolutely victims. But you can't view yourself as that constantly and gain power and control and agency. And that's what I thought was so patently wrong because there there's real wrong stuff happening but you don't tell someone that they're not capable of self-worth and that they need to find it in a book you tell them that they are capable of self-worth and that they are worthy themselves they don't need a book to know that and that's where i really just had a problem with it i do not like that teaching just philosophically but i felt totally like spike was in was very much critiquing that i don't i don't think spike in any oh, way 100 okay yeah no okay. it's just the character of malcolm yeah, that yeah. I, yeah i really was just running up against the character yeah i, I really yeah. just run into a philosophical rut against that stuff i really yeah. dislike it yeah 
it's like regardless of of Malcolm as a person, I like the 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 scenes of of oration, just and and how Denzel holds himself. Um, oh yeah, I'd watch Denzel any day. Yeah, um, I was thinking about it in contrast to Stokely Carmichael, who we see in Black Klansman. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, uh, Kwame. Exactly right. Okay. I should say Kwame. Okay, Kwame um, Ture. Yes. So just for for fun facts, in Malcolm X, there is a character who is a, a child, I believe, of Malcolm X, mm. very briefly, played by John David Washington, oh, who is yeah, later right. our main character in Black Klansman, which is just a fun wraparound. Great connection. Just a fun wraparound. Yeah. Um, to me, it is just impressive how he kind of holds the screen uh, with his voice. He's he's behind the podium. He isn't, you know, kind of a flamboyant mover. He's steady behind the podium. He still uses his hands a little bit, you know, to kind of point with a with a with a finger, but otherwise is pretty composed. And it's like the the intensity is kind of beneath the surface rather than on the surface, um, as most Denzel. Are. Yeah, I yeah, mean, absolutely. Fences is like the only thing mm. where he's just kind of vitriolic outside of his skin. Yeah, that I can think of definitely. Um, so he, you know, when he has the centerpiece performance and he says, you know, you've been had, you've been took, that's when I felt like like there's just nobody better who could have played Malcolm oh, X. Oh, yeah, there's nobody better. Yeah. He just isn't, no. Yeah. And I liked a lot of the the, the craft and, and the, the music. You know, we're getting a lot of... I like the know. neighborhoods a lot. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Really good uh, scene locations. Great location scout there. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Whoever was doing those permits was a great permit filler-outer. Yeah, there was somebody else who you had called out in your letterboxed review as someone whose performance you liked, but I don't remember who it was. Um, it was Delroy Lindo. Who did he who play? plays the West Indian. The West Indies. The um, drug dealer? Later, or his boss kind of yes later yeah. on in the film he goes into his apartment and he's very sick and feeble and mm. does not have any money right. that character his yeah. performance and the arc of his performance I, I think I, I love Denzel but I think it's the best in the film mm. I, and that's you know just one of those guys that never gets a real meaty role but when you give yeah. them something to do they do it so goddamn well yeah, it's that ratio, right? Of like limited screen time to outsized impact. Yeah, it's that Ben Foster. That, yeah, you know, <laughs> we're back to Ben Foster. Have him to the scenes, baby. <laughs> um, what else? I was not crazy about the ending of the film and the voiceover narration that comes on talking to us about uh, Malcolm X and and sort of his his virtues. I kind of feel like after a movie that's been running at, you know, over three hours, that's a little bit of a loss of faith in the audience to have just taken from the film what you want us to take from it. At the very end, he has to reiterate again in voiceover narration what his redemptive qualities would have been. Um, yeah. I, it took me out of it. I think, I think, I think sometimes you have to let the work just kind of stand on its own. What, and that what's felt your like ideal ending? Gosh, I kind of remember. I kind of wish I could remember what like immediately precedes that because that is like you know the well, it's the capstone. A, um, um, it's a montage. Yeah, that precedes it. Yeah, they do a montage of the fallout of his uh, gunning down. 
when he's yeah. assassinated. Yeah, he's assassinated. So, so just was, excluding how it actually ends, the arc is he's going to be killed. Mm-hmm. How would you prefer it ends? Before he's killed? After he's killed? While he's killed? Like, what's your ideal ending there? I think because I, it is a movie that I think that you're allowed to come up with how you'd prefer it to be because you we sat through over three hours. <laughs> you know, if we think that there's a better ending, we might be right this once. Yeah, I think the I think it was right to show uh, the, the showing the assassination felt right to me. I, I don't know that I would have cut that. Um, I may I maybe would have ended it on, on a on a more personal note um, with. Um, with his wife, perhaps. Um, this is me as a terrible screenwriter talking now, but I think um, I think it's easy to underestimate the the impact of ending something on a more intimate and personal note, and allowing that to sort of serve the broader impact of the film. They went very broad. They're showing kids now. They're showing Nelson Mandela. They're showing you know this, which was great. I did like that they had. You did like it. No, I liked that they had Nelson. Mm. I just like Nelson. He's a yeah. He's just one of those people that you just love as a person. You just want to see him, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm not sure. I maybe just I, I think I just could have done with something that. So, so that specifically didn't though, on. you're saying that you would prefer the wife um, to kind I of be so. the last image you see. Yeah, which maybe. is interesting because the one redemptive quality that I thought that this really long runtime had was illustrating the feminine arc of Malcolm's life and how women provided this backbone that allowed him to be at his strongest. Mm. And when he did not have uh, a strong woman behind him, he was at his weakest. Mm. So it's interesting that that's just kind of where you go. Um, Just personally, I would have preferred that he kind of, you, you know, you take some liberties. It's a movie that he be in the middle of a speech, maybe where he's acknowledging his shift in perspective from mm. being a zealot yeah. of religion to being more of a critiquer of perspective and wanting to have allies in all fields instead of hating everyone and only wanting you know, personal allies that he identifies with because of the teachings of his teacher and then have him get shot and end it. Yeah, yeah, that's... Because then what? it capitalizes on the real message to me of Malcolm X's story, which is as soon as you go against the people that let you be in power you're struck and down yeah yeah it is it, yeah it's a movie about betrayal right i think in he power. says yeah yeah i forget what he says after his house is burned down and you know but it's something like i expected to to try and be murdered but i didn't expect to be betrayed yes or something like that um and it does kind of feel like he's turning this corner where after having told a, a white girl who asks him how can I help and him saying you can't it's it you know he makes this he, he turns this corner where he starts to realize that they're that he, he wouldn't respond the same way anymore um, and then you know that's I think why the ending does does hit home for me is because um, it does it does feel like he was this was another phase it was this next chapter in this that they could have been this forever running movie um, that we don't get. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, it's a, it's a weird movie to rate, um, in pieces. I, yeah, I because like, are you supposed to rate the man? You supposed to rate the message? You're supposed to rate, 
the very valid reasons with why he felt the way he felt and was, you know, cast aside by society and treated terribly? Or are we supposed to rate it as a film? Oh, I would always, I always rate it as a film and how, how yeah, Spike are, decides how do you, to represent How do you know that you're not letting that leak in, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's like we always we aren't watching them in a vacuum, right? Like these no. other things sort of interfere. They Modern they definitely life. Yeah. they definitely play a role. Yeah, but I would think many people who have never even heard of Malcolm X. I don't think there are that many people out there, but people across the entire political spectrum who could understand and and really appreciate how Spike. Um, tells the story of his life, regardless of what you think about him. Yeah. So, it's a uh, it's a long sit. Yeah. But I would recommend it for history majors or film majors. I don't think I'd recommend it for just the casual viewer. If you just want to dig into Spike's work and, um, like before you watched Black Klansman or because you enjoyed the Black Klansman, she's got to have it. Do the right thing probably stop there uh mm-hmm. 25th hour and inside man um or is it inside job or inside man oh inside man inside yeah. man yeah. yeah 25th hour and inside man aren't as crucial works to his directorial and screenwriting voice as the others that i mentioned but if you if you really like his work you can dig into those two because they're both really good it's just this is one of those movies where i can't tell anyone that they um, need to watch this for three hours. Yeah, you get you get rewarded for a lot of like the touches. Like even this one has that floating phenomenon, right? Yes. When he's the going conveyor through belt. his death, um, you know, you get those kind of spike shots of faces in the crowd. Yeah. Um, I think that does. But the thing about that and, is that you have to be there the whole time. And there's a lot of people that don't have the attention span to spend three hour, three and a half hours without looking at anything else in front of Spike's camera. It's a long time. It is a long... Especially in this modern age where everyone's on their phones all the time. It was, it was tough for me to not get on my phone. Yeah. I almost never say this, but I think it is perfectly fine and even encouraged to just watch it in chunks. Two, maybe oh, more. Yeah. Split it into a, a limited series if you're going to watch yeah. it. Do 45 minutes a day. I think that would work just fine. And it, you might be more open-minded because I was immediately like thinking to myself, there's no way it needs to be this long and I hadn't even started it yet. Yeah. So people might be a little more willing to go with it. So uh, I kind of bumped it down to three from three and a half. You're at three and a half still? I kept it at three and a half. Did you like it? Did you give it the heart or not? I did not give it a heart. So I did not give it, gave it the heart. No heart. So that that says as much as you need to know. We're going to say goodbye, Malcolm. Uh, It was great having you. Thanks, Dunzel. And we're going to the 25th hour. Hello, Edward Norton. Hello, Edward Norton. And his dad, Brian Cox. One hell of an actor who uh, just wrapped up the first season of Succession. That's right. On HBO, which is just a fantastic series with one hell of a climax. Um, And he's... He's just one of those actors that's always working that uh, it was really fun to catch up with Brian in this movie. Um, we mm. also get some Philip Seymour Hoffman. We do. To those R. of R. us P. in the know, we call him the PSH. The PSH yes. factor. Of Welcomed, as always. <laughs> A welcome presence. 
Uh, Jack goes boating. Jack goes boating. Jack goes boating. What's that? His only directorial and starring film. Oh, I've never even seen that. We gotta get you in the know. Get you in the know on the PSH. Another episode. Uh, So this is a a picture about a man in the 25th hour of sentencing. He is um, found to be a drug dealer. And it kind of does a collage of before and during his 25th hour of going to jail um it's it's really hard for me to figure out where to start with a movie like this so why don't we start where you started which is before the picture even began and you thought that the movie was out of sync i hit play and immediately thought that there was something wrong with the the copy that i was watching because before uh, the images even come on screen. We're watching still like the distribution logos. We hear this whimper of a dog, right? And I'm thinking, I think oh, the it's not sound... just this whimper of a dog. It's this whimper of a dog. It's right. sad. Uh, yeah, I it think it's up even the Mike Vick in me. <laughs> yeah, I think you're <laughs> even the hearing <laughs> the beating of the dog. I don't think it's just it's whimpering. I think you're maybe hearing yeah, like you're hits hearing or him something. get hit and and whining, and you're like already gutturally um, you. You've already hit the 30-minute mark in John Wick, and the movie hasn't even started. Exactly. I was confused, only further confused when the images do actually start, and Edward Norton was driving with his buddy and in a, in a, in a muscle car, pull up off the side of the road and, and find this, this dog beaten off the... Um, just off to the side of the road. Yeah, he's in the uh, in the car with his very good Russian friend, mm-hmm. who is just a, a, a just a great character fellow. Yeah, he has great character, exemplary honor. Yeah, <laughs> and right off the bat, within I think the first two minutes, we get some jump cuts where we're sort of doubling back a half second in time. Yes. I thought for sure there was just something wrong with what I was watching because it was so quick and so jarring. I was very skeptical off the bat once I realized that that was intentional. Came around to love it, so we'll we'll get there. But from a slightly different angle seems to be yeah. a Spike's thing. It's always kind of slightly different. So we're looking at the same thing differently and like, what? The f- why are you doing this, Spike? It's very disorienting. Is this joint hitting me wrong? <laughs> it's very fast. Within you know, it, it just it just happens so fast that it's unexpected. Well, let's let's start with that touch. Did you? I love it. Yeah, I, I love those flourishes, artistic flourishes. Yeah, and film editing are some of my favorite things to yeah locate and then focus on and enjoy. Yeah, the. <clears throat> there was a moment when I came around to liking it. At first, it took me a little while to kind of come around to it. I thought it was maybe too jarring for me. And it wasn't until they arrive at the club and there's a cut right after he gives the bouncer, you know, sort of a, a bro hug. And it cut repeats and we see the hug again. And it's like we're just giving this guy back a couple more seconds to do these things again. Yes. And I was like, oh, I think I kind of like this now. His hours are numbered, but he's getting these little moments back. Of, and of joy or, or changing his friend's life experience moving forward. Yeah. Which continues to happen in the nightclub. And I, I yeah. think that we should definitely dig into that when we get there because there's yeah. some complicated stuff to talk about. 
So we we both like the most obvious visual touch. Mm-hmm. The, the, um, that spikeism. I guess you know this is a great performance, just like Denzel. But um, for me, this has more to appreciate maybe than Denzel's performance. Maybe that's because Edward doesn't have as often a great performance, or because Denzel is just so consistent that it's almost boring to talk about how great Denzel is. You oh, see how yeah. great Denzel was? Yeah, I saw how great Denzel was. You know, that could cap off any discussion about Denzel. Surprise, um, surprise. But this is very much that American History X performance that Edward gets. Uh, again, in a, in a different context, he's not playing a neo-Nazi character, but he's playing this disheveled, um, kind of a gangster drug dealer that's got a almost underage girlfriend that you're kind of questionable whether he should be dating her he's making these questionable decisions and we start our story with what he deems to be the best thing that he's ever done saving that dog's life doyle doyle great addition you know important doyle's addition. Law? murphy's law doyle's law i don't know it is is there a doyle's law no no, we okay. were literally repeating the dialogue of oh, the, I got of the it. film right there. I thought you were about it. to drop some knowledge on me and ruin my interpretation of the movie. I dropped some knowledge, didn't ruin the interpretation. <laughs> yes, Doyle. Great dog, great character. And the best thing that he ever did is the way that we open up the, the film. So we see Edward Norton's character in a much more redemptive light than he deserves. Mm. Which goes on to really affect us, the viewer, in wanting to be on his side. Yeah. And uh, there's a crucial point, I believe, before Edward meets up with his friends on his last night there. Where his other friend, who isn't played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, I don't know who he's played by, says um, Mm. what's happening to him, he earned, he deserves this. And that's kind of the truth. He is this drug dealer. Um, the thing that we don't know is I, I don't recall what he's dealing. Do you know what he's dealing? I don't remember. It's a good question. Because it, if it's marijuana, then it's a very complicated thing. Because then he absolutely does not deserve it. Because it's just a plant that doesn't make anyone more violent. It just doesn't. yeah. I got like, the sense that it was it was something if it's harder co- cocaine or something. Then yeah, he he does deserve it. And then it's you know into that moral question of. But is this the right punishment? He deserves to be caught and deserves to have it taken away. But is this the right punishment to be gone for eight or ten years? Or, you know, it it certainly, um, at that point in time, especially would have been, uh, which was right after nine eleven, which is a very important part of this movie. Yeah. It has a crucial role. Yeah, the, the the inclusion and kind of allusions to nine eleven are what, what what sort of threw me at first and what took me like days to rate it because and I'll be very interested to see what you took away from it I just could not decide sort of what to do with it I I think I was trying too hard to try to find like a one-to-one metaphor with 9-11 and I'd um, love to have been able to do that yeah I think that was a mistake I spent way too long trying to do that and I think that's I think that's the wrong idea especially if you think that Edward's Norton Edward Norton's character has only himself to blame, like he brought some of this on himself, like that leads you to, I think, a a uh, very upsetting metaphor, which is that like we somehow brought nine eleven on ourselves. That didn't make any sense to me. I think I spent too much time trying to sort of like set these side by side, 
and that was just a mistake. But knowing when it came out, I kind of think about again. Well, there, there is a very nuanced historical debate about us bringing nine eleven on ourselves. I won't get yeah. into that right now, yeah. but we could talk about that on the way to the movie later. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but I, I, I went a different direction and just started thinking about when like the movie came out, and again. Spike Lee as a, as a director who repeatedly and seems to enjoy um, grounding his films in New York City and sort of realizing that once 9-11 has happened, there are sort of going to be stories that feel like they are in pre-9-11 New York City and post-9-11 New York City. Mm-hmm. And that by um, and him having to sort of make this decision that this has happened, this just happened, but I think that this is the right sort of thing to now include in the movie given sort of the emotional experience and emotional similarities between them. But he doesn't really, you you know, the first time you see it, you think there's construction going on across the street. Oh, really? See, I thought that was, I thought that was ground zero. Uh, To me, that looked like the 9-11... uh, the site of 9-11. Oh, it absolutely does. Only the, probably because I read about the, the, movie the way that you're but... led up to it is not, mm-hmm. it's not about 9-11. It's not about what just happened across the street from his sweet penthouse. Totally. Sweet S-U-I-T-E penthouse. You know, it's yeah. this great penthouse in the skyscraper. And when you look across the street, it looks like a construction site. And the questions he's asking are like, uh, is, isn't it an eyesore? You know, it's just this very matter-of-fact, you know, thing. And and it's... I, I don't think that it's necessarily this great statement about how to take it. Yeah. It's just... He's making movies in New York, and now this happened. Exactly. And it's this is what the... it's like to talk about it without really talking about it. Just amongst yeah. friends that are kind of estranged. Um, that was a really good way that, that you put it there. Um, but what... Um, what affected me or how I took it was in that same scene, the first scene that it's addressed and kind of the only scene that it's really addressed is they're sitting there having drinks. And that's the first time glasswork really shows up Mm. in Lee's work. Um, And we see the um, silhouettes of the other character in Philip Seymour Hoffman, the other friend character, minus their heads on the glass. And in the glass through it we see 9-11's ground zero we see the the cost of everything and so it's literally these men's bodies reflected and the drinks they're holding but we don't see where they're putting the drinks and there's not really anything deep to say about it it was just kind of it was like the picnic at hanging rock there's nothing really you can say about it it's just this image that stick stuck with me you know it just it's there it's one of those things where i don't know how he came about conjuring it but it's one of those spike lee images that'll that's just going to stay there for me now that really makes me want to go back and actually look at that shot we can we can do that we have that option we have the power (laughs) uh yeah i mean it's it's those kinds of images that make the the movie stick with you um we already talked a little bit about edward norton's performance um he does just he does just feel so defeated already from start to finish that um, really stuck with me. There's the scene in the club when he's talking to his 
Buddy, who's not Philip Seymour Hoffman, who neither of us can remember. He's not Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's what matters, <laughs> folks. PSH is yeah. important. <laughs> <laughs> and he's talking uh, about how he says something like six months, man, six months, and then I was going to be done. And he was t- he's talking about like all the times where he was about to give it up. Oh, because um, his his friend is an investment banker or a stock broker, and uh, basically what he's doing in this context of the film is much more evil than what Edward's doing, but it's legal. Yeah. And so he was get out of the illegal game and switch over to the legal game, which is even more evil. And I thought that that was a nice little flourish that they don't really expound on. They just let sit um, and be true. It's definitely a, a fact, especially at that point in time, Enron was going on. Yeah. So. Which he alludes to, right? Mm-hmm. In his angry montage. Mm-hmm. Great montage. Um, I, I feel like we're just kind of skirting around the, the f- feminine characters in the room let's let's address this elephant Um, i will it's it's gonna be a hard discussion it's not fun um so rosario dawson's natural great performance yeah totally very troubling how young she is she's literally in a in a children's schoolyard when uh and he is either collecting payment or delivering payment for illicit materials at the playground when he meets her. Right. Um, and she is in a, a schoolgirl's garb. Yeah. Um, very Lolita. Took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. And uh, Lolita only, or Lolita's themes only continue with Anna Paquin. Uh, Absolutely. Paquin. I never remember how to pronounce her last name. Um, yeah. Why don't you expand on Rosaria, though, before we get to Anna? Gosh, it's really hard. And again, I think this is one reason why it yeah, took me it sucks. <laughs> forever to rate it is because I'm still not quite sure what to make of it. We Not meaning the movie sucks, but it's just one right. of those things where if you have to talk about it, it's really complicated yeah. to figure out what you want to say and have it make any sense. Yeah. Um, and not only do we get Edward's Edward Norton's character's relationship with this younger woman, it's... Also, Philip Seymour Hoppin's character's um, relationship with yeah, yes, with a a student. But then, so in in the middle, um, contrasting both of these is the fact that his friend is uh, the friend that isn't Philip Seymour Hoffman, isn't Edward Norton, is trying to get with Rosario Dawson's natural and telling Philip Seymour Hoffman that he shouldn't do anything at all with the girl that he likes who is 17 and in his class yeah and we see philip seymour hoffman's character actually act on his interest he he just makes out with her but it's Uh, it's, i wouldn't call it making out i'd say that he kissed her it's a kiss it's it's certainly a a nightmare being woken up like that kiss woke them both up from a nightmare yeah you know, like the classic princess Disney thing where they get woken up with the kiss by Prince Charming and it's all happy roses. It's like the opposite. It's they both get woken up and it's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> yeah. It's bad. And it's one thing that like I'm still not quite sure what to do with it. Like and, and, and see and, and, and figure out how exactly it fits in with sort of Edward Norton's character's arc. I don't um, know that you need 
I, I don't think that this is a film where everything fits together and serves one arc. I think it's one of those films where everyone's doing their own thing. I think it's like New York. Yeah. Like it's just a very New York thing where every, you know, like um, a psychosexual film that's similar to this, that is a lot more about like a singular arc and everything that is about serving this arc would be Una from last year with yeah. Rooney Mara and Ben Mendelsohn, which is really troubling because it is an underage girl having consensual sex with this older man and then um, she doesn't talk to him anymore. Mm. And the movie's about her addressing that because she's been told that it's like this rape. It's this thing that happened to her and that her feelings weren't real. And then she goes and has this confrontation with him while he's at work about mm. if it was real. And that was a lot more moving to me because it was about how she... you know, It was a real relationship that while we as a society rightfully deem it to be totally disgusting and wrong is truly how these two people felt. Yeah. And that is the entire opposite of what's going on with Anna Packen because what she's doing is like sexually manipulating him similar to Emma in Sharp mm. Objects. And he's very taken with her and under the influence of alcohol and edward norton allows her to come in and um i mean he wakes up to her like grinding on him and wearing his hat and you know he's already under the influence of things and then he goes and acts on it it's just this terrible nightmare escape but you don't know who who's culpable just because someone's underage doesn't mean that they're not acting terribly and somehow culpable for their own actions you know it's called parenting yeah (laughs) i think you're absolutely right that it's it's a mistake to try to connect it to any um more central theme i think that was a a mistake i was making and that it just like you said it's kind of just it's just enriching the world that these characters are living in despite you know edward norton's characters uh hardship like other hardships exist, other temptations, other regrets um, that, you know, for, sort of fill out the movie. If there's any similarity to me, it's they all end up under an overpass. Yeah. Which they do. And Edward Norton doesn't look too good by the end of it. But I think there is a glimmer of hope in this movie, despite it being pretty mournful. Um, but that glimmer of hope... I believe is false correct uh say more what do you mean the or how so? the montage near the end where brian cox is narrating mm. this fantastic life that edward could go live um while he's being beaten in the face i believe yeah. is the the timeline of that right it is because it's kind of it's doing that that uh jump cut where it's, it's, it's when they're in the car right driving to the jail but I thought that, that was, um, I thought that that was jump cut simultaneously with the so so it's like he asked him to beat him up and then it, it kind of becomes him in the car and while oh, they're in oh. the car driving I thought that it would kind of go back to the overpass every once in a while I don't know it's it, those yeah. jump cuts really fucked <laughs> with my those sense jump of cuts. time <laughs> I was were, thinking they were good it just fucked with my sense of time yeah which which is kind of okay yeah I was thinking underpass beat up 
drive to the jail during the drive to the jail. No, because we... he has to go to the apartment and Naturel has to give him the uh, right. home first that he drops. True. Home first, drive yeah. to the jail, and then Yeah, I cut guess it was probably features. just during the drive that they cut to that alternate future and then, you know, reality sets in. Yeah, exactly. You get this alternate future that Which he... is great. I'd love to watch that movie. That was a... Yeah. Give me a warm feeling in my belly. <laughs> I know. I could absolutely see some people thinking it's it's too heavy-handed. You see him age or something like that, right? You see him literally um, grow old. I loved it. It wasn't heavy-handed at all because it went back to reality, which was far more heavy. Yeah. Which was, he's going to prison for a decade. Yeah. Um, and he just got the shit kicked out of him because he looks too pretty and he's scared of what will happen in prison. This is a very, like, sexual film. But it's not, like, overtly sexual. It's just, like, sexuality is constantly underneath the surface. It's, yeah. he's too pretty to go to jail the way that he is. He tries to get his friend to kick the shit out of him so that he doesn't look pretty when he gets there. Yeah. Um, the guy that he's dealing drugs for, the Russian fella, tells him that the first thing that he needs to do is beat the fuck out of someone who doesn't have anyone that they're aligned with on his first day there or else he's going to get, like, prison fucked. Yeah. Game fucked, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. And then Rosario Dawson's, like, youthfulness. And, you know, um, and then he goes on to expound on how um, Philip Seymour Hoffman should just wait a year. That's the age that he met natural. You know, like, it, it's just yeah. this underlying it is just this weird abusive sexuality. Yeah. And the city of New York. Yeah. So so the, there is something there. There's some connective tissue, but it's, it's more... Um, silhouetted it's more hollow it's more about mm. what you take in that interpretation i think yeah it's very much a projective type of a film than a film that projects onto you you project yeah. onto it yeah it's hard to articulate because the more you try to like hone in on specifics the more you seem to kind of be missing the idea yes. right it's sort of like impressionism i guess right where mm -hmm. you know you're looking at things through kind of a warbled glass and if you look too close you miss kind of the big picture exactly um lean back yeah I spent way too long looking at it too close. Um, and definitely glad. Too much like, coffee that day. Probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think there's there's hope. What, what I put in my letterbox review was that I think there's hope uh, from the first scene, right? Mm -hmm. With Doyle seemingly being on death's doorstep. It looks like he's got less than 25 hours to live. He does not look too good. And he, he gets a second chance. Trunk. They throw him oh, in the yeah. trunk. That's what I meant to say. So the first thing is he um, he saves something, but his blood is drawn from it. Mm. I think that that was very purposeful. Yeah, he gets an, bitten or clawed or something. An act of saving also drew blood and gave, it cost him something. So yeah. from the very beginning, to do something good costs him part of his life. Yeah. And what is prison other than a cost of life? Yeah. And um, I think that he goes on to try to do good things or has good intentions. And that is what... Because the only other character in the beginning goes on to kind of play this dog character. Who yeah. is this um, portly Russian. Who yes. is telling him that Naturel betrayed him. Yes. When really it was him who betrayed him. And he's the one pointing out that he just got bitten. And he's trying to tell him it doesn't matter. But really, this fella is the guy who really 
bit him really fucking yeah yeah right? so it, yeah. it that was kind of the theme that i picked up on that was really the underpinning mm. of the message that this film mm. had for me was that the things that you try to save the nice people that you try to take care of and believe in are the things that really mm. get close to you and cost you parts of your life yeah 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 there is no saving without some expense or something yes yeah yeah i agree i hadn't really thought about it like that but that seems very on point i agree um i loved it i don't know if i have anything else to say yeah it's a great movie yeah it's a good one i definitely recommend it it's available on digital download um and i'm sure that it'll be on and off instant streaming as you um come to it just kind of add it to whatever list you have and you'll get a notification i believe if it does hit streaming uh Mm -hmm. that was our last joint that we sparked before the clansman um are you ready i am ready we are continuing with our spike lee filmography with the latest black clansman and just in coinciding with spike the next door neighbor dog barking that's exactly right. You may hear him. He is a friendly dog, just eager to participate in the podcast. We told him he couldn't be a guest. He insisted. Yeah. No Barbara Loden, no Spike the dog. He can deal with it. Can't control it all. Black Klansman. We both just saw this uh, in the last 48 hours. Mm-hmm. I think we gave it the same score. Mm-hmm. Four out of five stars with hearts mm-hmm. i think we both enjoyed this pretty well yep i uh just opening i would say that it's his uh, as i wrote in my letterbox review his most well layered and broadest joint mm. it's something that everybody can smoke Ooh, i like it it goes down easy it sure is which is a funny thing to say about a movie that's about the kkk um, i don't know i think it makes absolute sense because fuck the kkk mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Word. it makes it real easy to say fuck the KKK. Word. And the hard part is almost the way that um, he addresses the other issue, which is, like I was saying earlier, just because something's bad doesn't mean you get to do the exact opposite and have that be the good thing to do. And mm-hmm. that's where this movie really digs into something a little bit more difficult, right? Because um, the gal leading the. Uh, black college student union is that what patrice but what is that the name of what the union is yeah that's okay. right um she is calling all cops pigs doesn't know that he's a cop um saying that, that all white people are the problem you know and and by the end this really turns into a huge problem for them where they're gonna break up you know mm-hmm. because of it because she can't be with a pig yeah yeah, it certainly. I don't. I don't think it ends with them necessarily together. Uh, together. No. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but the actor who plays Ron Stallworth, I'm forgetting his name. It's Denzel's son, right? We're talking about which Ron Stallworth? I am talking about the African American Ron Stallworth, uh, the not Adam Driver. I was talking about Adam Driver, Ron Stallworth. Oh, okay. I see. We have uh, to clarify. John David Washington. John David Washington. I didn't realize right. that was Denzel's son. That makes absolute yeah. sense that Denzel's right. son would be playing Denzel's son in Malcolm X. I only realized it after looking at IMDb and having that realization. 
Washington. Does Wait it a minute. look like Denzel? Not so much. It's not a terribly striking, striking similar resemblance. No, not um, at all. Like maybe the eyes or like the pattern of speech. Yeah, but, but I thought he carried the film. Um, abs. Him and Adam were just fantastic. Yeah, uh, I think it totally kind of pulls off a lot of things at once. It's consistently funny. I was laughing. Oh, yes. Most of our audience was laughing. But, you were laughing. But we were laughing at points when they weren't willing to laugh. Which yeah. is certainly interesting. Yeah. Um, in we all had a the few while, people walk out. We did, interestingly enough. Which is... A few people in our row, which was very interesting. Yeah. Perhaps these people just had somewhere to be. I don't remember them even walking out at any, any like particularly interesting moments. Um so yeah, that was odd. I, I kind of had the sense that they were like, all right, I've had enough. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, it's always interesting when people walk out, and I, I tend to keep track of if they come back. Mm. And they never did. They did not. We were down a few folks by the end. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't think of all of Spike Lee's movies, this would be the one to, to cause walkouts, but that was interesting. Um... What else? Uh, the the period detail I thought was great um, to see him, you know, have fun with some of the this the '70s costumes and not oh, have them be too flamboyant, you know. No, but the, not but at be all. fun. Not at um, all. The music. There's a scene early on where he's with Patrice at a bar and they're dancing, you know, to some oh, that '70s was such guitar. A cool scene. Oh, yeah, great yes. stuff right there. Oh, I like I like that scene a lot. I like yeah. to watch him get down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, He's just it, having a good time. Oh, man. Yeah. That really puts a smile on my face remembering that scene. Yeah. I think this is one of those movies that shows him as both an angry uh, voice as well as a compassionate voice. Um, I think the compassion came through uh, particularly, particularly during the student union meeting with uh, Stokely Carmichael and we get those shots of the faces in the crowd, right? Or were you not crazy about those? What's his name? Stokely Carmichael, right? I correct myself. Remind me how to pronounce it? Kwame. Kwame Toure? Toure. Toure. Kwame Toure. You are absolutely right. Teresa would slap me for that. I'll slap you for that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know to, to me it sort of you know forces you to not just see the the people you're looking at as a group but also as individuals mm-hmm. um you know i think some people call him an angry filmmaker and i don't know that, that that that's like you you feel his anger but you also feel his his humanity in all of his pictures i um, think that he's as angry as woody yeah totally angsty angsty definitely he's you know woody's got um kind of Jewish classic vitriol going and Spike has classic African-American vitriol going. You know, there's there's old issues and tendencies that they each have by their culture that give them a distinct voice and something to channel. And each of them, I think, do it really, really well. Yeah. And sometimes they each reach outside of their presiding New York residences and, and make a film and this is just kind of his... Um, Geez, what was the last one that, that Woody would have done? Was that Irrational Man, or was that the one with Emma Stone where they're in England and with the magician? 
That was Magic in the Moonlight, which I didn't even Magic see. Magic in the Moonlight. That was a good one. Um, that was a good one. Mm. Not a good movie, but really, really great performance by him. Mm. He, yeah. he always gets those good performances. Um, definitely better than Wonder Wheel. Which I also did not see, but doesn't sound like I need to. Well, you thought that you needed to see the miseducation of Cameron Post. So if you think that you needed to see that, then you definitely need to see this, because they're exactly the same in quality. It's all With better relative. characters. Fair enough. Uh, what else about Black Klansmen? Um, uh, the best use of a dial tone. Absolutely. In quite some time. There's really funny material here with Ron Stallworth on the phone with David Duke. This is some of the best gags it has, for sure. Very much kind of in line with that sorry to bother you idea of sounding white. Yeah, but mm. with a... Different angle, right? Yeah. But it's hard yeah, not we, to we, think about. You turned me on to a podcast from New York Times uh, mm. journalists. Do you remember yeah. what it's called? I don't. It's the New York Times podcast called Still Processing. Still Processing. Podcast. Yeah. And we were listening to their ex- uh, episode about black splaining. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about uh, how... I, I don't remember if they really dug into Black Klansmen. I don't think that they really dug in they made it there. too yeah. much. But um, they were definitely criticizing um, Sorry to Bother You for the, the way that it was explaining um, stuff. Yeah. Two people of, of all race and all sensibilities. And I don't think this is really trying to explain anything. I agree. In there the same is... in the same way that Sorry to Bother You is trying to explain. Like there certainly is the white voice thing going on, but not in like this I'm trying to get ahead. It's like in this way of there's a problem. Here's the solution. I have the agency to provide a solution to this agency of the police force. And it's just great. Like you're yeah. on there's the entire team side the the whole time other than that stupid asshole racist cop. Right. Yeah, there's nothing like what we get in blind spotting where it feels it felt to me like gentrification in San Francisco was being explained to us versus you mean Oakland. Yes, sorry, sorry, Oakland. Um the Ron Stallworth never seems to be explaining anything to us. We are just with him. He's just He's a character. Oh, interesting. See, so we didn't do a review for Blind Spotting, so maybe we can right. just kind of do it, bring it Here up briefly. But um, I did not take it as an explanation. I I saw it as uh, David Diggs grew up there, mm. and so did his friend, who I don't recall the name of. Um, but I saw it as like they were processing it for themselves, and this just happened to be a screenplay about them. Not necessarily like, oh, we're filmmakers and our goal is to talk about gentrification. It was more like, we're people from Oakland. We want to talk about our experience and um, try to like be authentic. And this just so happens to be what we're reckoning with right now, if that makes yeah. sense. I, and yeah. I, I mean, I definitely hear that green juice criticism that she had. Um, I, I just don't know that it's that important though because what they're communicating in their screenplays how they feel and how they feel they can accurately represent how they feel so i think whatever liberties they take and whatever symbolism they use is completely reasonable and you don't have to be narrowed in by your culture's experience to what you use for symbols within your own storytelling yeah i would 
I would agree. To me, the directorial intent behind it makes total sense. Makes total sense, but sometimes it just felt more to me like list making of what gentrification involves than uh, a film that felt really just sort of. So lived you, into so me. you thought that it was a gentrification film. Um. Not, it's not fair to call it that because there's also this uh, uh, a police shooting, right? I mean, I don't want to give short shrift to that, but the gentrification thing is just first okay, coming so to my mind, I guess. I would. This is one of those interesting things where I'm completely opposed to you. Ooh. I 100% <laughs> disagree that it's an issue film. Mm. To me, it's a relationship film. Ooh, yeah, that didn't strike. It didn't hit me it's, that way. It's their relationship. It's David and the other characters' relationship um, about uh, and their relationship to Oakland. Mm. And just because there's police shootings or green juice or gentrification, that's just characteristics of the relationship Mm. between them and the city. Because their relationship is because they both lived in Oakland. So it's it's kind of this this trifecta relationship. Yeah, this menage a trois. Yeah, it's 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 one of those movies where the the ideas make sense. Like what's I like I don't doubt anything that they're kind of talking about between each other or uh, about what's happening in in Oakland. Um, but the the way it sort of resonated with me felt um, very much like sort of a heightened artificiality. Which, is that maybe right? because the climax rap scene is the climax rap scene and that that is the climax? It's part of it, for sure. Um, that didn't work for me. Be, um, because I I felt like they could have paced it differently, which it's their first screenplay effort, so I don't know that they could have. But if they would have, not they could have, but if they would have um, had the chance to pace it so that the party scene could have been the climax mm. where it was him reckoning with the fact that he's from Oakland and he's repping so hard even though he's white and he's acting black um, then maybe that would have been a better climax yeah. um, and that maybe the police scene needed to happen a lot earlier where he confronts him and we kind of get the rap scene because it was really strong um, but it, it kind of undermined what did come before and I mean, yeah. I'm not like a huge fan of this movie. Yeah. But I did like it enough to put a heart next to it. It's a three yeah. for me. You know, so I yeah. felt about it the same way you feel about Cameron Post, except for I give it a heart. Yeah. Mean, meaning yeah. I, I really enjoyed the emotional experience I had. That's kind of what that means for me. Yeah. Yeah, I can't, not, I can't remember if I think I gave it a, a two and a half, so not that much lower. Um, but. In contrast to Black Klansmen, where I just I just feel like I'm dealing with more fully realized characters and a more um, organic kind of um, connection between the characters and the world that they're in. And, um, I had I, I understand I I understand I don't agree. Yeah, I I think that the reason why you feel like that is because Spike's a much fucking better director. Because yeah, it's based on yeah, a totally. real book. Because it's based yeah. on real events. Whereas I think that the characters, the two main characters in Blind Spotting, are just as believable in real characters as any character in Black Clansman, to me. I think that's a hard thing to pull off and make it still feel real when a character 
burst out into, into a rap, right? Um, I, I, yeah, it certainly has a heightened element of theatricality. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, the whole time I was watching Black Klansman, I wasn't thinking this is real necessarily the whole time. You know, right. like, everything that's happening isn't real. When the, uh, when they're at the clan uh, meeting near the end, and the servant, you know, says quite loudly, if I knew that this was a clan meeting, I wouldn't have fucking taken this gig. Yeah. You get the sense that that's not exactly the tenor he would speak. You, you know, like, yeah. there's just subtle touches that really keep you reminded that it is a movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know if I but even... But it is weird. It's a true story. Yeah. Oh, It's absolutely. some for real, for real shit. Very for real. It's weird to sort of compare, like, the rap in Blind Spotting to something like... Radio Rahim in uh, Do the Right Thing. You can, the love and because hate. that's amazing. It, but yeah, but that's exactly why we should compare it, right? It's like, why is that amazing? Or at least, I, it's something for me to think about, since it, I felt like those are equally sort of theatrical gestures. Maybe the rap's even more theatrical. But in both cases, Radio Rahim's breaking the fourth wall. He's just talking to us about love, mm-hmm. hate. Doing his thing. Okay, his so box. for me, they're separate things because Spike is a vision visionary. He does yeah. write screenplays, yes, but he's a filmmaker. David Diggs is a performer, and he wrote this screenplay with his friend, who also plays the other character. And to me, yeah. that is an entirely separate sensibility. To write and to, sh- to do a visual art are n- not coinciding things if one if if one person only does one of those and one person yeah. does both that doesn't mean that they're both the same to me that means that one it is that Quentin Tarantino vein of a, of that super artist with impeccable vision and the other one it just has a way that they feel that they want to represent through character it's kind of like mm. like a screenwriter like why isn't Gillian Flynn directing it's that same thing to me it's someone that has something to say about character not someone that has something to show about how to represent the real world interacting with these characters. They want to write about yeah. it, but they want someone else to make those hard decisions. Well, then I guess, to me, the the failure for me rests with the director of Blindspotting. If you, if you think that this is a oh. writer's movie, then so he, he fails totally. And just because... My biggest criticism of it is the first third sucked. Directorially-wise, <laughs> the lighting was terrible. The directing yeah. was terrible. It wasn't framed well. Yeah. And they kind of found their groove about two-thirds in, but it was way too late. Yeah. Yeah, by that point, but you've... To, to me, like I, I've brought up before, it's, you know, the character work that, that sells mm. it. And what I think, you know, is fascinating, just like last episode that I thought was really fascinating, is that you think that blind spotting is equal to Hail Caesar. Uh, oh, rating-wise? But um. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's weird ratings. Two different movies to separate conversation. Not um, right now. By the so way, I folks, heard that you raised Hail Caesar to four, four and a half. This is false. This is fake news. But you're <laughs> peddling. Okay, Trump. <laughs> by the way, folks, blind spotting was not even on our list of films to discuss. This is bonus material. BS. <laughs> we nicely weaved it in here. That was a real pat on our own back. Shouldn't have done that. <laughs> now I just have to edit it. <laughs> <laughs> See the silent trunk. Slowly build back into Blind's body. Or Black Clansman. Or Blind's body. Whichever one. <laughs> <laughs>
I gotta think about something to say about Black Klansman. <laughs> we could talk a little bit about Adam Driver. We who could. I, I really, really enjoyed in this movie. It's hard to figure out where to start with him. But really, when he turns around in that chair, that really just... That's exactly what I was going to say. He is the audience, kind of. He exactly. He's kind of the audience's way in of... Are you saying this? Are you really saying this, you know? Yeah. That turn, it's not an entirely smooth turn. He does it in, like, chunks. And he's... Revealing Michael Buscemi's face. Yeah. Absolutely. He's a great supporting character. I think he does sort of cede the floor to uh, Washington as our lead performer. But Mm -hmm. he's really, really... um, you know, this this pillar of support um, in filling out the Ron Stallworth character in its entirety, obviously. Um, and I think he does have a hard role of, of having to um, be the one to participate. Um, I think, you know, anytime you have, you know, a performer having to play a performer that just kind of in, obviously involves these different sort of layers um, that I believed from start to finish and that's what's you know so unsettling is that his performance as a supposed kkk member is so convincing right um you believe that these guys would believe him right i believe that it was believable enough for the (laughs) oh man this is hard to say (laughs) i believe that it was believable enough for the nice clansman right and i believe that it wasn't believable enough for the the bitter, angrier clansman. Right. That's that's exactly it, right? And that's exactly what gives it its tension. Yes. And its believability. It's the I've, reason why a certain now. rock gets thrown through a window. Yeah. That's the moment where to me this is almost playing like a buddy cop movie. Mm-hmm. Right? Which it, is Yeah, no, that's when it's at its best, you know. Yeah. It's, that's kind of my favorite genre. War on everyone, nice guys, you know, just a, any sort of a good buddy comedy. Yeah. Um, really makes me smile and have a good time. And that's maybe what made me really just overall enjoy this and feel like it is broad. Yeah. Because the the buddy comedy is a super broad genre. That it's hard to point at anyone in any part of America that doesn't like a good buddy comedy. And this just happens to be one where they take down the KKK. Yeah, yeah. To, to me, this is oh, it's always it always sounds so pretentious to call it a, an important film. I can't believe I was about to use. Oh, you're about to use the word oeuvre. Ooh, I, I could <laughs> use that, but I, I I would say we don't get that many movies that are this funny and that this sort of easy to just easy to watch in this vein. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With 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 um political um themes on their minds mm-hmm. um any description of a movie that that sounds too overtly political i think can rub people along the oh, it can rub people the wrong way as pretentious i think this is a very unpretentious movie it's a fun movie yeah um it, despite the you know abhorrent behavior that it depicts um and I think some of the touches we didn't talk about involved um, visual storytelling as 
something he's Spike seems to be um, suggesting we think about, right? In the very first scene with Alec Baldwin as somebody who you listed in your Letterboxd review. Who was this character? You don't remember this character? This is a a famous, famous character within the Black Klansman world. What's this guy's name? Well, you know, I, of course, have it memorized. So let me just thumb through my neurons. Dr. Kennebrew Beauregard. That's a big name. It is quite the name. Dr. Beauregard. Kennebrew, sir. Kennebrew Beauregard. That's a mouthful. Played by Alec Baldwin. We see him spouting racist rhetoric, but having some trouble doing so. Rehearsing. Exactly. Rehearsing some sort of a terrible racist presentation. Yeah. To great comedic effect. Gets the whole theater laughing uncomfortably for our theater. It does. And that's before we even see anyone else. This is just the opening of of the flick, of the joint. Yeah. Yeah. This is before we've even ashed it. We start immediately with a character uh, who's, you know, spouting things that almost anybody would, you know, find pretty repugnant. But it makes you laugh, and it, and it, and it makes you aware of, you know, sort of the visual story storytelling techniques that are used all the time in movies, in news, to elucidate a point. kind of has that uh, callback... Um, to another movie that we both really liked, uh, Hail Caesar, mm. where George Clooney asks for a line. Mm. Right? He asks for right. a line. Yeah. And you famously loved that film. Five stars? Oh, six out of five. Yeah, I thought so. Oh, yeah. Nine hearts. Oh, absolutely. And then we get the inclusion of the KKK watching The Birth of a Nation, D.W. Griffiths. That was tough. That is super I, I haven't watched it yet. I've Me always meant to watch it, but I feel like by watching it, you're like allowing it to be important. Yeah, it's exactly right. I, I have the it's same feeling. It's this weird, yeah, contrast where I, I, I don't know, if I watch it, I need to watch like really important African-American films like immediately yeah. after it or something. Yeah. So it's, it's just interesting to see, you know, a filmmaker who... You know, it's clearly a cinephile. He knows his movies. He knows his movie history. I think you see in his other movies the styles and techniques that he really appreciates from Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, Cool Hand Luke is the poster on Edward Norton's apartment. Yeah. Like, yeah. Film is everywhere in his stuff. Yeah. But he's, you know, also aware of how um, troubling it is uh, to, to watch some of these movies that have been deemed, you know, influential in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and he clearly kind of... had to watch it to include it in the picture. And that's like, that's part of it. You know, do we watch the terrible past that we have yeah. and move forward? Or do we try to avert our eyes and, and yeah. not address it and, you know, repeat the past? That's kind yeah. of what this addresses is, are we going to, re- that's kind of what the black power, white power juxtaposition is, right? Yeah. They're saying that, that the white power thing is the problem and that the solution is black power. And he's saying there's a problem with that by the end of right. the film, which is a very interesting conversation because um, there's a philosopher out of uh, UC Berkeley um, who I've really dug into and he kind of explains things as social fences, 
and that society slowly erects these social institutions, which he calls social fences just for ease of use. Um, and one of them would be like the police force. Mm. And so if you don't make the police force part of you, and you say that it's not part of you, then it's not part of your social fence. And um, John uh, David Washington yeah. makes it for for these people part of their fence, but the people that are supporting black power, specifically Patrice, say that it's not acceptable. Right. And that is kind of this fascinating thing where, because what is fence? Fen a fence just, let's see, 12,000 years ago was exclusively the thing that kept the predators away right. from a town. And so if you think about it, a social fence or, or a social institution, that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to protect the people inside of it. And so he's kind of repurposing the social fence that has um, has not adapted to including everyone yet. And she's saying, no, that's wrong. And he's, mm -hmm. you know, that Spike's even criticizing through the narration of this book that, no, we, we have to make things that cover everyone. Yeah. suit everyone and they won't always suit everyone to begin with you know a fence yeah. might be built too low it might let a giraffe over it and then if a giraffe had the appetite of an alligator we'd have a real problem not good and um and this kind of addresses that in a really unique way that i i don't know that i expected spike to have especially after malcolm x you know he he certainly didn't pardon Malcolm but he didn't really criticize him in as harsh a way as he criticizes both movements here yeah by literally juxtaposing the power screams absolutely it does feel pretty even-handed yeah uh tonally and and in its time spent uh content wise on on each sort of angle yeah. um and that that just gives it a balance that that I think was was really nice um I was a, I was a big fan. Yeah, it's a great great little flick. Yeah, not little by any means, but you know it's just a fun way to talk about movies. It's yeah, a great big flick. Um, do you expect anybody? This is the first movie we've talked about probably since we started that could have legitimate Oscar considerations in any sense. Mm. Do you think that he has a chance for for adapted screenplay with the uh, the novelist? Do you think that he has chance for best director? Or do you think John David Washington has a shot or Adam Driver or, um, you know, any of that stuff? My fear is that even though I think those performances are pretty good, I might even put Adam Driver as best supporting actor ahead of Washington as best actor. I agree. I I kind of worry that neither of them are showy enough, you know, to to warrant Adam the Oscar is attention. Absolutely not showy, right? Like these these are always the kind. I can see kinds... an Oscar narrative though about Denzel's son that you never knew about, and right. this great performance from this famed director Spike. You know, like I can see the Oscar narrative there. Whereas with absolutely. Adam Driver, they can be like, you know, Kylo Ren, you know that great movie with Riley Keough. <laughs> yeah, to me, it's it could be one that gets a Best Picture nomination. No, no other nominations. Even, not that, not because those technical achievements aren't there, but because they aren't showy enough. But the political relevance would garner it that nomination, no, especially in a really picture. wide field. Not a Best Picture nomination. I can see it. 
I see Best Popular Film nomination. No way. Yeah. No way. I don't think it'll be big enough at this the box This just came office. out 48 hours ago. We don't know what yeah. type of legs it's going to have with... You know, if Fox News decides that this is some sort of a offensive film, then it could have three weeks of great box office, which would be ideal, you know? Like, yeah. we, we just need the right narrative to get behind this movie because it's the first movie from Spike in over a decade, really, that deserves the attention. And it really deserves the attention. It's a, yeah. it's a great middle America movie that kind of is for everyone. You can be in Alaska, Hawaii, Florida upper new york buffalo you know like it doesn't matter you can kind of have a perspective on this um and luckily we have a really nuanced perspective of the landscapes by uh having uh someone on the podcast uh you know limited time guest from colorado how are the locations mike i think this captured colorado springs quite well when i think about colorado springs it's right up against the foothills of the rocky mountains it's dry you're starting to see the pine trees as you you know get closer to the mountains. Um, I think it was just right for a guy who's always shot in urban locations. New York City, Chicago, Chirac. Um, there aren't a lot of exterior um, scenes. There, there, there were, handful, but they were but, limited to streets. Yeah, or they're they're kind of medium shots. They yeah. aren't you know like vistas or anything. No, but you get the red rock. I think it was uh, spot on. And, and I approve. As a Coloradoan, the... I approve this film. I approve this message. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, a little reference where Adam Driver is trying to come up with an excuse for why he can't take over the KKK faction or chapter, whatever it's called. I don't really care. And he's got a, a sick dad or mom in El Paso. Is that like a is that like a place where you'd have a sick relative? Oh, reasonably? so. So El Paso is Texas, right? Yeah. He says, yeah. Um, no, I, I already knew that. But, like, is that a reasonable, like, thing in Colorado for, like, you'd have a sick relative in that area? Is that, like, a common thing or something? Entirely plausible. Okay. They also talk about Pueblo. I yeah. forget why or who lives in Pueblo. Um, well, no, they were, I thought they were trying to be racist and, like, blaming a character. But I might be mixing sharp objects with this because yeah. they are certainly uh, blaming the Mexican uh, truckers and oh, sharp objects. Absolutely. Yeah, I forget who says they are from Pueblo or drove through Pueblo, but they even specify like the distance between Colorado Springs and Pueblo, and I was waiting for oh, it. So that was when they were coming up with their story. Yeah. To tell the Klansmen. When John David Washington um, and Adam Driver were coming up with the combined Ron Stallworth narrative of their drive to work and switching the radio stations. Right. Great they touch. Lose a, they lose the signal behind the mountain. Yeah, it was geographically accurate. Pueblo is not like a, a, a popular town, you know? They, they just as easily could have said... Denver, but Pueblo's like small town just off I-25. I drove I-25 every weekend growing up. I'm like, they got it. I'm looking for the flaws. They figured it out. <laughs> they looked at the map. They must have had a, a well-written book. <laughs> Location scout did their homework. So the two things that I had alluded to earlier are the cut repeat. Mm. So, do you have anything you want to say about David Duke before we get rid of David Duke? No, we can move on. performance or anything? Okay. 
It was a pretty good performance. I liked him. The well, it's you just went on the record as liking David Duke. I boom, gotcha. <laughs> this is clarify. gotcha German. Topher Grace, <laughs> great performer. David Duke. This is a, not a pro David Duke podcast. This is an anti David Duke podcast. Very so, anti. Uh, so uh, I I wrote in my letterbox review that it has the most memorable telephone call in cinema history in the last decade when he calls David Duke to let him know that he's been talking to a black man this whole time. And when I, I believe it was that exact moment when he goes to slam the phone down, that's the only time Spike does cut repeat. Oh, I don't so even he shows remember him that. Slamming the phone down twice, you know? Oh, so yeah. you really, just like the hug, you get this extra sense of fuck you. Oh, yeah. Just giving you that satisfaction twice and then, over. And then you call it the floating bodies. I call it the conveyor belt shot. Yeah. Um, it's this moment of horror when the entire film we haven't seen a cross burning because of the successful investigation of the clan. And they hear some noise outside, him and Patrice. Mm-hmm. And they he grabs his gun and he tells her to stay there. And she already has a gun. Mm-hmm. And she's pointing it. She got it from her purse real quick. Mm-hmm. And they start proceeding down a hall, and out the window of this hallway is a burning cross. And we cut to the KKK, kind of uh, fleeing the crime scene. But in that hallway, they have the conveyor belt shot of horror, out-of-body horror, you know, that floating body, where they're just looking on, and this is our first sight of the burning cross. And why is it there? It's there because of them. And because it doesn't matter what color he is to us, the viewer, it matters who he is to us, we feel horror with him. Because to do this to someone for no reason at all about who they are, but simply what they look like, is just terrible. On so many levels. And it's almost like an existential problem. The way that it's posed be it at that point in time in the movie. Like, it's not just a black thing. It's not just, like, yeah. about white racism. It's about judging people off of external characteristics, not the quality of their character. Yeah. And it's just a moment of horror that I was 100% there for. It was so effective for me. And I, I thought that those two shots were just the best that he's used his... Um, you know, the shots he's known for in quite some time. Yeah, to feel like he was, like we were going to get a triumphant ending only to then get that shot of a cross burning finally happening after all he's done to try and infiltrate the KKK and essentially doing it. That was after they took the case away. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, the That's, immediate it's devastating. Yeah. The immediate um, cost of him no longer being able to perform his duty is the thing that he'd been keeping from happening, happening yeah. to him. Yeah. The, the the second he's that responsibility is taken from him, it continues, and it's just this feeling of defeat or something. Horror. Yeah. Well, I think that's it from these two combined Ron Stallworths on Black Klansman. Do you have any parting shots there, Ron Stallworth? Go see it while it's in theaters. I think it was fun to see with an audience, despite it wrestling with some really disgusting people. It's a funny movie, and it's fun to, to see with people.
Yeah, and if you have uh, stadium seating, quote-unquote, um, in, like, your apps or whatever, and you can pick a showtime that has a bunch of tickets already sold, go for that. Go out of your way to make sure that you see it with a group of people. Because getting to hear people's restrained laughter and shame, like laughing or being ashamed to laugh, adds a whole nother dimension to part of the problem that this movie is addressing. And it's just a great movie. And I really hope that it makes enough money in theaters for it to be rational for uh, another studio to spend money on it. Just kind of my closing statement here is this is the first movie all year that is good that was made by Legendary. Oh, right. I know you have some beef with Legendary. I, I don't have historical beef. I have beef very recently with the terrible films they've attached their names to. And I'm really glad that they chose to fund this and give it the proper marketing it deserved. I wish they would have given it more marketing. But, um, you know, they can't market everything like they marketed Skyscraper, I suppose. That's right. <laughs> um, so I, I'm willing to forgive Legendary if they continue down this path. But uh, it's they still got to earn my respect. Hope they're listening. Oh, they are. (laughs) And uh, from Ron Stallworth and Ron Stallworth, uh, that's it. It was a fun exploration of Spike Lee. It sure was. Now, just back to our our weekly recap. Uh, Last week, we did episode one and two. That's right. This week, we're doing three and four. We're talking about sharp objects, folks. Uh, Michael's staring longingly at the pencil in my hands because it does have a sharp tip. Sure does. There's a lot of blood in that show. I hope we're not about to see any. I think we're both still on board with this show. I like television a little bit more than you, I have a feeling. Definitely. I am 100% on board with this show. I enjoy myself limited series. Um, I think before we kind of dig into what's going on in both these episodes, episode three and four... You had a really good um, question that you posed to me yesterday, last evening. Um, Do you recall what it was? My question was, is this a story that may have been better suited for uh, the film format instead of a miniseries? Mm -hmm. What do you think? Um, Well, before I answer you, I want to ask you some additional questions, such Mm. as you listen to Film Spotting's podcast, partially. Um, Yeah. You heard, did you get to the part where Gillian addresses your exact question? It is hilarious that I asked you this question prior to realizing this podcast existed and they addressed that precise question, which I did here. And What do you think of that? I, I, I understand her intent, which is that she says in this interview, Gillian Flynn, that and is... And she is a writer of quite some merit. Sure. She says that... She first and foremost wanted this to be a character study rather than a crime story or a murder mystery and thought that the miniseries format was better suited to um, giving Camille, Amy Adams' character, the attention she thought that character deserved or, or was necessary to fully fill her in. Absolutely. So would you like some great news? What you got? I wrote down my answer to your question. Right when you posed it. Love it. Before I listen to the podcast. Ah, okay. You ready? What you got? So I wrote down, what is Jean-Marc Vallée doing in eight hours that Fincher couldn't do in two and a half hours with Gone Girl? Mm -hmm. Off the cuff answer, 
deep character worth, both of Amy's character and of the town. Interesting. The town of Windgap. The town of Windgap. The sentence that I, I, I added another sentence in parentheses, which is uh, just kind of like the way that I feel about how something's developing is the veins of the town. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning the way that the town operates, because all systems do have uh, ways that they operate and either create or consume things. <clears throat> and I do think that over time, we're really getting to feel how the town of Windgap operates. And mm-hmm. who, you know, just because the immune system might be the sheriff doesn't mean that necessarily the heart is anybody that would actually normally be in charge of a town. In fact, it seems to be that it's all centered perhaps in this gothic manse that Amy grew up in. Right. I do think that word gothic hadn't really crossed my mind before listening to the podcast, but as soon as you hear the word and you think of the house they live in, this... American uh, gothic mid-America manse. It's huge. Um, That word suddenly feels just right. Southern Gothic. Um, well, I mean, you can just think about Amy as a character too. Yeah, like, she absolutely is like a embodiment of that house. Like she, she's always dressed in black, right? Yeah. She, she's cutting. That's not really secret at this point. She's yeah. cutting because she doesn't like herself. She's writing terrible words or questions yeah. into her skin. Um, yeah. She's constant. Like her most emotional moments are around death. You know, her life is centered around death. Like, it is a very classical gothic tale. Yeah, yeah. When I think back to film class days and talking about the gothic tradition, you know, I remember talking about, like, um, you know, the idea of something out of the past haunting the present. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it is her past, right, that she's wrestling with. Very Um, much that that crimson peak. Yeah. Uh, So I think that description really fits and, and sort of helps to sort of you know um give you the maybe the the angle so do, from do which you to have look like an it. argument that you want to pose to both gillian and myself since i answered before gillian did and we have fairly yeah. similar answers two things I, I i don't know that her her answer I, I would maybe just like to hear a little bit more from her about why she thinks more time was necessary to give this character all that she wanted to give her because I think there are there are dozens of movies throughout film history that are character studies that give us fully fledged out characters in two hours running time. So she said she was worried to lose Camille in, be, because it was a character study for her and she was worried basically that uh, she started using a candy metaphor. A what metaphor? A candy or chocolate metaphor. Oh, right, right. Um, And she was worried that the movie would make Camille too chocolatey without the bitter barbedness of Camille's true character. And she wouldn't be able to elaborate on the generational violence that is happening. Yeah. And I listened to the podcast where Adam does this um, interview with them at the screen of the second episode after I watched episode three and four. So all the notes that I have generally coincide with exactly what she's talking about but I wasn't influenced by what she was talking about. So, like, it's absolutely working for me on the level that she intended. Is it not working for you on that level? Are you not getting that... Are you not able to agree that perhaps Camille would be less served by a more limited character study? Where that moment of when she has the detective finger her, it feels very uh, bitter, Almost, yeah. you know, it's not like this sweet romantic moment. It's like a, 
it's hard to put words to it exactly but it, it, yeah. it's not a sweet moment it's yeah it's a savory moment i guess like it, you know there's a lot to chew on there but it's it's certainly not romantic <laughs> definitely oh definitely not and i do think it's a striking moment when i when i watch any miniseries or any television show that's asking for a lot of time i do think that you know i can't help but ask myself you know is the director just fully justifying how much time they're asking well for we're us? we're 30 minutes longer than malcolm x right now right but in. we're not even or we're halfway Yes, and I do feel like it's wasting your time. It's definitely not wasting my time. Like overall, I still enjoyed this series quite a bit. But you know, I think a little bit about like last week when we said episode two, we didn't have anything to say about it Um, because nothing really happened. Not a problem. There's there's absolutely value in in world building, building out a sense of place. There's value in that. I don't know that some of the editing that I liked at first is really working for me quite as much as I thought it might. I'm having the exact opposite experience. Where in episode two, it was starting to not work for me anymore. <laughs> and now I'm starting to kind of dig the lingering shot of the butter knife on the table. Mm. And then the jump cut later in the episode to where she's taken it and um, it's off the napkin a little bit. And right next to the napkin is her carving a word into yeah. the table. That's yeah. starting to really work. See, this is, I think this is just personal experience experience i think to me it starts to feel a little bit like jean-marc valet losing faith in our being captivated by these characters in the present and the town itself by mm. sort of holding this carrot out in front of me about i one... don't agree with you no you don't feel that i i agree that that's a, a valid criticism to to feel that way but i disagree that it's jean-marc valet's decision could be an editor's decision nope. but I think it's Gillian Flynn's uh, screenplay's decision because I I know the rest of her interview um, uh. where she's explaining <clears throat> what about the novel she brought to the screenplay and why mm. and specifically what you're criticizing is something that was in the book that she brought to the screenplay and and I I do agree that I don't know that there's a right way to do it I think it either works for you or it doesn't and I think it's because of your viewing sensibilities yeah and I think that you're kind of form-driven sensibility might give you an entirely valid reason to not like it. Yeah. And I think that Jean-Marc Vallée gives you the best interpretation of that that the form can really have. Yeah. But that still doesn't really do it if it doesn't do it. I think that it's yeah. just about as good of an interpretation as you can get, though. Of yeah. Of a screenwriting sensibility, which is, you know, that latent storytelling. But to me, he's done that in all of his work. That's what makes it feel more like a director's choice, right? I remember him doing that in Big Little Lies when we kept getting these flashbacks to Shailene Woodley's um, What We Come to Learn is a Rape. Oh, I think that was part of the book. Uh, Like a book behind Big Little Lies? Yeah, like the book Big Little Lies. Oh, it could be, but I mean, that seems, but right, that seems odd that he would choose, you know, four different books, Dallas Buyers Club wild big little eyes sharp objects that all in the screenplay somehow involve this same kind of editing trick that to me to me it seems the constant well, a, here is the editing ploy. and the director it's a it's a writing narrative ploy to call back to something uh that kind of gives your character a drive that makes them yeah. unique to the world that they're inhabiting and i i don't remember that happening in dallas buyers Club. It's been a while. Maybe I'm misremembering. I, I definitely it, remember Wild and, and Big Little If Lies. it does, it's it's with um, 
the Joker's character, what's his name? Uh, Three Seconds to Mars guy. Leto. Jared Leto. Yeah, Jared. It would be Jared Leto. Because I, yeah. I don't think McConaughey has any flashbacks that are trying to give us more like emotional stuff. He has flashbacks, mm. but it's not like the same flashbacks to give us that like emotional um, overwroughtness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but really, like, that aside, I'm still positive on the show. It's not like I'm ready to quit or anything. I will 100% finish it. Still enjoying it. You know, just always trying to, you know, think about if things are sort of, you know, working to the to the in best, the best possible way. Yeah. yeah, of course. That's what makes talking about it fun. Yeah. I love the wallpaper in that house. Right? Oh, yeah. No, great, great location design. Great uh, scouts and everything. Oh, yeah. So, just get started. Episode three. Two DPs that episode. Two directors of photography. Really? I did not know that. That's I, interesting. First thing I saw, I was like, what? And, and it really was strong visually. Yeah. And that's... For me, that episode. Kind of bold. <clears throat> I think you would maybe risk then having, you know, different sensibilities or something like that they were you would never yeah, was, i didn't know that and i didn't yeah. feel that that's a success yeah definitely <laughs> the pig chase scene mm. you remember that right at the beginning i do that was quite the subversive bit you know where they're the teenage boys are chasing the pigs you know it, you kind of get this feeling that the pigs could be the teenage girls right that are missing and have their teeth pulled out just like the pigs do at the you know it's just yeah. an unseemly scene yeah. that really made me gave me a feeling that i went into that episode with yeah I thought that yeah, was the, really strong storytelling the chase and the play or in the prey visual metaphor yeah it's yeah. all affecting there's a specific line that i think i wrote down twice yep don't tell mama mm. that keeps coming up and Emma says that. You know what? Emma is a kind of a palindrome. Mm. Mama. Interesting. There could be something to that. Uh, by the end of episode four, I certainly feel like there's a significant possibility that Emma is the murderer. <laughs> it definitely seems like we have not crossed off that possibility. <laughs> she is up to some Lolita shit. Mm-hmm. Infrequently. Yeah. It's hard to know if that is a terrific bit of misdirection or if that is a very real suspect. Or both. It's great. Either way. Maybe yeah. it's just good misdirection. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Suspect, yeah. You know? So it's called Sharp Objects. The camera lingers on Sharp Objects. Mm. But we spend a lot of time with the object of the camera being women behaving sharply, especially mm. to one another. And I, I thought I, I thought I'd ask if, if you had any take on the women as objects kind of thing going on. Ooh, I don't know if I've really thought about it in those terms. Have you already mused on this a little bit? I might be interested Somewhat. to hear what you're thinking Somewhat. first. So, to give me some um, more food for thought. Patricia Clarkson is the oldest character, um, oldest feminine character in the whole thing. And any time that she is inhabiting the same space as another female character who does not cow to her, she is behaving very sharp. So specifically Amy Adams, she's just treating her like an absolute fucking piece of shit. Like yeah. just, and, and she's, Amy is a very strong character in this film. Camille, right? Right. Um, yeah. But she's cowed by Patricia constantly and lets Patricia kind of rule. And by the end of episode four, we get the sense that the sheriff lets her, and that she makes the decisions for the town. And that's why I think that this deserves the eight-hour treatment. 
Mm. And what I mean when I say the veins of the town, where we figure out Mm. that, you know, just because the immune system is the sheriff, meaning the thing that makes the town keep running and stay safe, doesn't Mm. mean that he's the heart of the town. Doesn't Mm. mean that the mayor is the heart of the town. Doesn't mean that even the business owner is the heart of the town, who's her husband. She's the heart of the town. She's Mm. the one who can get him fired instantly. Mm. And there's some... uh, you know, at the end of episode four, all we know is that they both, the mom and uh, Camille, both know something that neither Chris Messina nor the sheriff know. Mm. And I I think that um, it's no coincidence that the women behave sharply. Mm-hmm. And it's called sharp objects. And that the camera lingers on the sharp objects and on the women the most. I, th- I think that there's certainly a, purpose to this style yeah uh, i like that idea a lot of her patricia clarkson's character as sort of maybe the the puppet master behind the scenes she was the one kind of pulling the town's strings mm-hmm. which to me makes, makes me think a little bit about hereditary and that kind of dollhouse aesthetics yes. because there's this dollhouse 100%. that we yeah. see every other scene in the house and sharp objects that she's sort of tinkering with and maybe she's the and town I, is her bigger dollhouse that every she's time, manipulating. Um, like Emma is is being manipulative, we cut to the dollhouse. Yeah. And yeah. her rearranging like the sofas or the chairs, armchairs. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that I'm I, I it's a reason why I feel like this genre and the style of lens work mm. is should exist. And it makes me think you're probably going to hate Mosaic because of the uh, because of your you know, objections already to uh, something of, of this good of quality that I, mm. I think that um, based on how you took in Unsane, uh, oh, yeah. I just don't think that you're going to like it at all. Well, I always I always you, want to like everything. I always go at open-minded. So th- this is, I, I mean, Mosaic is also the detective story, right? The, this is the right genre. This is a detective story. This is the right genre of a, a long lens format. Yeah, meaning something extended, something episodic, and something where you're—it's a whodunit, you know. Yeah. And it's not an eighty-six minute Hitchcock; it's a ten-hour romp um, or eight-hour romp. Yeah. And I, I just—I certainly question when we get around to Mosaic for you if you're gonna be able to go along for the detective ride as mm. the voyeur attempting to solve what's happening because you don't. Mm it's mosaic it, this yeah. kind of gives you a perspective you're following camille you're following chris messina there are two people trying to solve a problem it's yeah. very understandable mosaic is literally a mosaic of you getting a bunch of different characters trying to attempt to understand what happened yeah and i won't get into what happens at the end but that's kind of the style which is very yeah. different than this so if this and the classical style is harder for you i can't imagine what the you know his bended perspective of the genre will do to you in a way that sounds like it's i do think that's maybe more promising for me because it is you know that that does seem to to be even better suited for the extended format where if each episode you're getting this different perspective and hence this mosaic like structure that seems very fitting and Um, um we're using the term lens format which i first heard coined by keith ulick and um he referenced the person who came up with it, but all I can remember is that Keith Ulick told me who came up with it. So yeah. for this podcast, we reference Keith Ulick. <laughs> He's a good source. And I'm probably mispronouncing his last name, but I don't care. <laughs> um, 
Uh, so the last note that I had on, on episode three was music to block out muted suffering. Mm. Because they can't voice their suffering. Mm. So they're listening to music. Um, the, specifically the father, Amy, the character who later commits suicide in episode four. Um, they're, they're all going to music. Um, you know, even Emma and her friends in episode four are listening to music to kind of block out what's happening to girls their age and this suffering in the town. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I think an even more popular cinematic technique is to use music to express what a character is feeling. This is the opposite. Yes, right? to suppress. Yeah, that's and a that great was, point. Um, and according to the podcast, that was all Jean-Marc Pallet's decision. Right, he was going to make them playlists or something, right? He didn't make one for Chris. He's right. real bitter about that. Exactly. Still waiting for it. Yeah. We're waiting um, to give his final performance. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting mix of music, too. You have pop music, like LCD Sound System that Amy Adams' character plays. The The father is playing a lot of Michelle Legrand records. Last one was an Umbrellas of Cherbourg song. Ooh. Which I you was struck by. You don't like that movie, right? You uh, hate it, I have a soft spot for it, <laughs> you could say. Um, you're right. So tonally... So seemingly tonally off, but that's a perfect way to, to de- describe it that I hadn't really thought of. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, cool. Uh, and just last thing, which was a top note, um, just Amy's father, and I put a circle around it. Like, what the fuck is going on? It's actually her dad? It's a little confusing. So it's um, actually her dad? Yeah, I took it that way. Yeah. Um, fuck, that's weird. And it seems like there's kind of an age gap like Patricia's older yeah I was a little devastated in that scene where he says to Patricia Clarkson I lost a daughter too you remember that yeah I wasn't uh that didn't hit me emotionally that that hit me a little bit because he's been a little bit on the periphery I was already there and then so that that's one of those things where I was already there and then he said it and that ruined it for me because mm. I was already there, and then that it's makes like, sense. don't say how you got me to feel out loud. Mm. Well, to me, it was even a great setup for this very theatrical gesture where she, like, falls backwards on this little uh, and, bed and stand. Does the, the uh, back of her palm to her head. and She says, I'm so tired, or something like that. And you, it's that manipulation again, right? Oh, yeah. Just, she's constantly manipulative. Yeah. So, uh, think of... So, this is notes on episode four. Do you have anything else you want to say about episode three? No, let's, let's go with okay. it. So, I wrote down, think of Amy's house as the town. Mm. Right? Like, there's there's nice spots at certain times of the day, depending on when you catch Emma. Yeah. Depending on when you hit the kitchen, you know, you, you get her, uh, her kind of godmother figure, who's the servant of the house. Um... Or if you go just right, kind of like a lot of the scenes we get, if you go early, you don't catch anyone in the hallways in the house. She doesn't catch anyone on the roads. Right. Right? It does, yeah, it kind of give this these these levels, right? The dollhouse, the house, the town, these different kind of scales. And then, um, so, like at the bar later, she's having a good time, which is Christmas scene, mm-hmm. like just having a good time. And then Emma shows up, mm-hmm. ruins the good time. It's kind of like if she was at home and Emma switched her 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 uh, character traits like she does. You know, it's kind of just this repeating cycle of, you know, you have to be from a small town to understand 
how the charm of a small town isn't charming once you're there at the right time. Right. That's a great observation. Any, anything else, or should we move on to self hatred? Ooh, self hatred. That is that a is just a note by heavy itself. theme. Right above, don't tell mama again. So self hatred. Um, everyone in the town kind of has self hatred. Yeah, I think I feel that a lot in Chris Messina's character. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Why? I didn't pick up on that at all. Um, I picked up shame. Yeah, maybe. Actually, I think hatred's probably too strong a word that I would use for him. It's he's just the kind of character who isn't. I, I don't feel like he's where he wants to be. Um, you know, he wakes up and he Nothing. says, "Still in wind gap." It's this. It's this self frustration. I think that's better. Hatred's okay. too strong, especially in contrast to the to the other characters. But go ahead. You're about to say something. Sorry, Patricia Clarkson. She's constantly drinking, constantly yeah. criticizing her daughter, who does the same fucking thing. That's oh, yeah. self-hatred to me. Yeah. Emma's got self-hatred that's suppressed, right? And she's acting out of it. Um, Amy Adams literally wrote how she feels about herself on her skin and bled. We spend a lot of time in a uh, hospital overnight holding ward where with another girl that Amy Adams is with who's attempted suicide as well. We have the father who we understand hates his situation. Um especially when he's basically being cuckolded by the sheriff in his own home. Right. It, it's just uh, the brother uh, who is being suspected of the murder gives off a lot of self-hatred. Um, and I, I, I guess this is kind of jumping, but I didn't see, I don't think you could see, but I didn't see what was it, whatever was under the bed. Did you see what was under the bed that she cleaned? It was a bloodstain. Certainly a red flag. Certainly a red flag. Literally red flag. Ooh, boy. So, going back to women as an object, this show is using sexuality as a weapon. Mm. Notice that at all? Pick up on that at all? Emma, I s- Amy, yeah, I was kind of using their sexuality as a weapon. Absolutely, I think, Patricia yeah. Clarkson's kind of doled her blade, but she, yeah, hers she's is found the, the most... right person to cow with, with the weapon that she's using. Hers is kind of the most subdued and sort of withholding, but you... you... 100% feel it. Emma's is the most overt um, and Amy Adams' character is somewhere in the middle. So I have a quote here. History is history. You can't change it. You just learn from it. Mm. This happens in the hallway when Emma is asking the teacher what he thought of her performance. Mm. It's kind of the only honest interaction Emma has. Mm. It seems where she actually cares what someone has to say. So it's an interesting quote. We definitely have this then consistent theme about something from the past continuing to sort of oh yeah, and the disturb woman in the white, present to bring that back. Yeah, we were talking about the woman in white earlier in um, uh, Barbara Loden. Yeah. So do you th- do you think whoever is behind the murders has some kind of uh, historical? Um, relationship with these characters in the town that's that's going to serve as the I think the that that makes the most sense but right now with where we are in the arc if I'm just letting Jean lead me yeah it's Anna ooh interesting because she's the one who has to please her mother mm-hmm. and her mother has the most history that we've seen in the town so like she, by her mother's behavior she's being driven into being this 
Right. And it's her friends who've been killed at the porn shack, which we brought up last episode, which I was very focused on. I thought that that was a big key area, and it seems that I might be right based on yeah. how this one ends. With, um, yeah. And what do you think happened at the end here? Um, so we have three different possibilities. Rape, mm. accident, or murder. Based on that montage. I assume the second option, accident. I don't think accident. we are going to lose so her you yet. So think, you think Amma's going to get hit by Amy? I do. Okay. I don't think I, I don't think we're going to lose her yet to as a victim. That'll certainly be an interesting development to mm-hmm. see how Patricia manipulates Amy after this incident. Oh, if yeah. that is what Cannot comes be good. to pass. I I'm thinking that it can't be the murder because we we see that image of Amma with her teeth pulled out in the rape shack or the porn shack whatever yeah. I called it. Um but I, I'm also thinking, like, maybe it's maybe it's just a dream. It could be. Maybe you know, some, That's kind of some... like the day after, like, when I was driving over. I was just like, maybe it's just a dream. Maybe it's not Maybe I'm thinking too shit. much. It's yeah. just visual deception. Exactly. Do you think she could get the teeth out of, of that girl on her own? Or do you think she has an accomplice? Well, she... We were drawn to think that she has spent time at the pig factory. Right. So I'm drawn to think that she could do it herself. Yeah. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was Emma and the boy. Who the boyfriend? Yes. Or the no, the brother, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I guess he's both, but exactly. So I, I guess last thing the so we just reviewed Black Klansman before this, and mm-hmm. there is a strong relationship between the words pig and cop mm. in that film. Ooh. I'm starting to get the feeling that there might be a metaphorical relationship through images of pigs and cops in this. Mm. You picking up on that at all? You vibing with what I'm saying here? Or are you thinking I'm, I'm, absolutely. I'm stretching and reaching a little bit too much? No, I'm totally vibing with your with, with what you're saying. Vibing with my rhythms? Absolutely. <laughs> That's interesting. We, uh, we have mostly Amma's interest in the pigs how her relationship with Christmas Cena's character and how that develops I think and also the sheriff interesting. when the sheriff comes over and she's being um, yeah. pointed to him and, and doesn't want to let him in and then um, once right. she can get one over on her dad then she goes and gets Patty right yeah she seems to get some satisfaction out of going to the pig farm playing with them who well, knows we what don't she's really doing know we don't know what she's doing with yeah. them right but maybe she's Toying with the cops as much as she is toying with the pigs at the big farm. Toying with Amy. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe she was the puppet master. So, <laughs> I'm, who do you think did it? I already said I think that right now Emma did it. I think that it's more realistic that it's someone that's been around for a long time that did it. Like, for some reason, the sheriff's wife. I really don't know. Or, uh, how about Patty Clarkson's friend? The drunk friend. Yes. That would be a great twist. Right. <laughs> when you really get someone out of left field. I don't know that I would like that. It would maybe be surprising. Oh, we they show her pull her teeth out like she's um, uh, Alden Ehrenreich and Hail Caesar. And she just got Hannibal <laughs> filed pointed teeth right there. I would be terrified. <laughs> and then Gary Oldman comes out of the closet. <laughs> Could be pretty disturbing. <laughs> Um, if it is, 
Emma, I think she has to have an accomplice. I, if if she is it, which I think perhaps our best evidence is that it is her, I don't think she's alone. Why? Um, because, because of the strength? Because of motivation. I disagree. I disagree. Because of the because of the Patty, um, because of the um, historical trauma being passed on to the mm. daughter, because of how Amy turns out and what Amy is capable of inflicting to herself and continuing to survive, um, and the amount of strength that that takes, I think that Emma is absolutely possible of what Amy Adams Camille is possible of. And I think that uh, Camille could do it, and I don't think that she does. So I think that Emma could absolutely do it, and I think she could do it alone. She could be the woman in white. She could be the woman in white. That's a good um, image. So I guess last thing to address is uh, the um, the suicide scene where the girl drinks a bunch of Trano and Amy goes into the bathroom and rips a screw out of a toilet and cuts herself and gets stopped. Yeah. I was deeply moved and was um, I, not pleasantly surprised, but I thought it was just a good decision, editing and directing wise, to kind of juxtapose this all in together and, and kind of mix it up and do a great menage or melange. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Yeah, t- I do think it sort of um, deepens the the impact when you see Amy Adams hurting herself to know that she's already seen this to its conclusion it, it just it just you know further kind of underlines the you know the the, the end result if you take this too far mm-hmm. um, it just it, it makes it that much more devastating and just, to see Amy Adams continue to do it knowing um, what it leads to it also accentuates the amount of pain that she's coming from yeah because that teenage girl didn't have every inch beneath her neck covered in scars the way that Amy does. Yeah. And, you know, that's there in my interpretation because of her mom. Yeah. So, uh, we both don't know who did it. We both still are very certain it's not Christmasina. And we're fairly Fairly certain certain it's definitely not going to be Camille's Amy Adams. Pretty certain. Yeah. But everyone else is still in play. Fair game. I'd love to see Patty and Emma both be culpable. No suspects have been crossed off. Uh, I think that's it for this week with Drinking the Movies. This has been Taylor and... Michael. Uh, and we'll catch you next week as we recap uh, episodes 5 and 6 of Sharp Objects. Looking forward to it. Have a great week, guys, and we'll see you next time. This has been Taylor and... Michael, thanks for listening.